This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. All right, so I get a lot of questions about signed books and In the Blood coming May 17th, but you can pre-order some signed copies now if you go to my website, officialjackcar.com, go to the blog section, and right at the top, there's a campaign to support local independent bookstores. So I've done that for the last, uh, this is the third time that I've done it. Did it for Savage Son, did it for the last book, The Devil's Hand, and I had uh, these book plates for those that you could only get from those independent bookstores. So to try to push some traffic there uh, away from the Amazon easy button uh, and to support these local independent bookstores, uh, I did that for the last two. And then this time I wanted to up the game a little bit because this is a sniper-centric novel of violent resolutions. And I wanted to do something a little different. So I shot through the title page after I signed them. So Simon & Schuster sent out a bunch of copies of the title page. And this is in advance reader's edition right here. So the actual one will be the hardcover, but uh, I shot through those, uh, signed them and then shot through them and sent them back to Simon & Schuster. So when the book is printed, that will be bound into the book. So a certain number of those were going to different independent bookstores across the country to help them out. And you can find them on my website, officialjackcar.com, go to the blog and the participating independent bookstores will be there and the ones that are sold out will have lines through them. But uh, the ones that are still in red, you can click on those and order a signed copy if you so choose. So uh, that's in the blood and that's this year's uh, campaign to support local independent bookstores. Welcome to the Danger Close podcast, an ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is my friend, Kyle Lamb. Kyle spent over 20 years in the United States military, most of that time at 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, better known as Delta Force. We talk about his time in the unit and his actions on October 3rd and 4th of 1993 in Mogadishu, Somalia, actions for which his award was recently upgraded to the Silver Star. But there's a lot more to Kyle than just those two days back in October of 1993, and we'll get into that on this podcast. So now, Without further ado, Kyle Lamb. Kyle Lamb, let's 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 talk about you. Are you in your podcast uh, studio? What is that? What room are uh, you in? I'm in my office. Nice. Look, can you? I don't know if you can tell. You see mine. We have some similar decor. I have. Oh uh, yeah, a couple of different tomahawks up there. I'm not sure if you can see it. I can't move any cameras. But uh, yeah, I got the Winkler over there, and then a different one over here. Uh, the Damascus one over here, but uh, what is the one behind you? Did you make that? So no, that's one that was made by um, Ryan at RMJ Forge. Oh, nice! And yeah, he made it for me when I was still working with Five Eleven. Okay, it was with Tom Davin. Yep. Tom Davin's the one that commissioned that to be made for wow. me. Um, I don't. I honestly, I don't have any of that I've made with me. I, everything's kind of in the shop. I've got other stuff here, but. Uh, yeah, that's actually my gun vault behind me. So when you walk around the side of that, there's a, a big oh, nice. vault door that you can open and go in there. And it's, uh, oh, that's man. my, my, my workspace, you know? Yeah. I need to come out and, uh, and, and visit cause we're in the, we're in a new place now. Um, yeah. so next time you come out, you came to the old place, but, uh, uh, next time you come out, the podcast studio should be done. This is just an office, a temporary one, but, uh, building a separate podcast studio out there and kind of figuring things out. And then the next stage 
will be a barn and the barn will have the walk-in uh, gun safe and all that stuff like, like you have, because I just can't keep buying gun safes and <laughs> sticking those in different places. Yeah. Uh, the walk-in is definitely the way to go. Well, we built, when we built this place, the, the first thing we built was a two car garage with a uh, living quarters above it. And then a little gun room there with a, a gun safe. And then we built a big barn, a 48 by 80 barn. And we keep all of our, we got like a little bunkhouse in there, but we also have um, some of our toys, you know, I, we, we bought an RV this year. Nice. So that's been kind of fun. A little Mercedes, not a van, but like a little RV and it keeps everything protected. And then Melinda wanted to build a house. So we built, I don't know why she wanted a house, uh, but we built this house. And that's when she said, yeah, I think you should, I think you should put a gun vault in that corner. And I've got a really big office. I've got 16 foot walls, so we can hang a bunch of dead, dead critters on the wall. And it's, it's pretty cool for that. But, uh, and then the warehouse was actually the warehouse was built on our property before all of that. So that was our, you know, so that we would be here at Crusader Acres more, more full time in Tennessee. And then here a year ago, well, two years ago, I guess we started building a forge. So now I have a, a up and running forge and Melinda has half of it where she's doing leather and, and woodworking stuff and some other, other stuff. But uh, then my half is mostly making knives and tomahawks. And I'm just doing that for, for fun. I'm not do well, I shouldn't say fun. I guess it's, it is fun, but I'm doing it. It's a, it's a good release to just think about something else. Uh, we started doing, selling some of the product for stay in the fight foundation. Okay. So when people want something, I don't take any orders and I don't sell any of this stuff, but once I'm done with it, I put it on the shelf and I'm done with it. Yeah. I don't, I don't really care what, you know, what happens at that point. But uh, Melinda said, well, people want this stuff. Why don't you sell it to them or let them make a sizable donation to the stay in the fight foundation and then they can get something. So it's been kind of fun to, to do that. And people come in and they're like, well, how much, how much is this? And I go, well, make a donation, how much sizable donation. Yeah. And they go, what's sizable? And I said, well, I'd, I'd like to have it hurt a little bit. And if it hurts, then it, it's probably a sizable donation. That's a good know? way to uh, do it. Hey, look at that. Nice, uh, nice cup. Yeah. These black rifle coffee guys, you know, they're some of my favorite <laughs> liberal friends. They. Uh, so I've read. So I have read. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. The guy was like, have you heard what they've done? And I'm like, if you think that Evan Hafer is not on our side, you have lost your mind. Yep. That dude is a patriot. Yep. So, yeah, I love these guys. And I don't know when this podcast is going to come out, but tomorrow in New York is when they're going public. Yep. Amazing. Amazing. It'll come out a couple of weeks from now, so it'll already have happened. But how cool is that? I mean, go up there, you know, army veterans. They're, they're, I think they're surrounding themselves. I think you can invite people. So they're having a bunch of other veterans, law enforcement, first responders, firefighters, I think come up there with them on that little platform where you ring the bell. So I think that's how yeah, they're, yeah. they're doing it, which is really cool. I mean, that, and what a great moment. What a great moment. We got invited up there, but something happened with getting, I don't know, there's issues with vaccine, uh, vaccinations mm. and everything. So they're, I don't know, they're, yeah, we're not going. Melinda just, my wife just had surgery yesterday, oh, no. a knee surgery too. So she's getting, she's in recovery right now. Oh, so you're, you're uh, pulling double duty. You got to, you know, uh, cook and clean and, and no, no, run no. the business she's, and do this podcast is, and all that is stuff. way tougher than us. So she's, uh, She's still doing the cooking and everything. She's just <laughs> got to sit good. down every now and again and elevate her knee a little bit there. So, no, man, I'm doing good. I've been busy. Uh, 
doing a lot of writing lately and, and trying to that. finish up some stuff. I did. Uh, I finally finished the fiction book. You did. Okay. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's been an interesting journey. Yeah. Fiction, you know, people that like you, you probably understand this, but I didn't. And I didn't understand that fiction is so much harder to write than the other books I wrote were, were very easy because they were kind of a, right yeah, there. they were just a, it's just, it's telling a story that already happened. Yeah. yeah. You know, those are instructional books and, and story books. Man, look at you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got them Oh, all. yeah. These things are heavy. Like, like you, you pick them up and you think it's going to be light, but these things are seriously heavy. Uh, so you guys did a great job with all these, of course. I think the first one was Green green Eyes, Black Rifles, and then came Stay in the Fight, I think, and then Leadership yep, in the yep. Shadows. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, then when I was doing Leadership in the Shadows, I started writing a fiction just kind of as a release. And the fiction, I finally finished it, and I let, I've let a couple people read it. I uh, let Melinda read it. And she read it and she goes, this is good, but I don't think it's you. And it's, it's, a, uh, and I'm not trying to, I mean, this is just me, uh, kind of going, going through a growing process. Like, so what do you mean by it's not me? She goes, well, you're, you know, you're who you are and what you've normally done is this. And this kind of goes off the beaten path. I think part of it was there's some negativity, mm. you know, like I'm, you know, the, the, the bad guys in the book happen to be terrorists that are also Muslims, you know? Mm. So it's that part, I guess, can be a little bit negative when she's looking at it the way she looks at it. So I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, she said, well, maybe if you write three or four more books and then they all go together, then, then maybe, but right now, you know, you probably shouldn't, you shouldn't publish this. And that I've got to tell you, that was heartbreaking to me because you know how much work it is to write one of these books but the problem i've got is she's actually right yeah you know i need to if if you can read a book and i get better towards the end of the book why wouldn't i just say let me stop there and start another book mm. and be be better throughout the book so i have some other projects i've been working on and, and it's it's uh a lot of these top writers that i've talked with or listened to kind of what they say. They say, write the book that you want to read. Yeah. Well, I wrote it. I read it. I should be done with it because I, I don't need it. I'm not doing it as a business. I'm not doing it for any of that. I did it because it's, I really like to write. So we'll see what happens, but it's kind of a, it's, I don't want to be Debbie Downer because it's not, it's actually made me really like look at myself and say, okay, what if that's not me, then what is me and what's, what should I be doing? Um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of cool. I've got the other book projects I'm working on. I, I have a, a Christian book that's war stories from the Bible. Yep, and, and you and I talked about that yeah, yeah. when I was out at your place and I was really happy in your last book that you, uh, I was kind of disappointed. I listened to it on tape uh -huh. because there's a lot of big words in there <laughs> that are very hard for me to pronounce, Stop it. but I decided I would, I hadn't listened to your guy do, do a book on tape. Okay. And I thought I'm going to, I'm just going to try this, see what happens. Oh my goodness. It was amazing. Awesome. And I like the fact that there's a, there's a lot of conversations going on. And I think that if I would have read it, it would have been harder for me to read because mm. I got the same attention span as a, as a <laughs> monkey, I guess. You don't. But, 
but reading it was, or listening to it was awesome. Your, your, uh, what's your narrator's name? Ray Porter. Yeah. He did a, just a, I mean, just a spectacular job, but I got to the end and I thought, I sure wish he would have mentioned Ehud the assassin. I did. And then boom. Oh, there they, it oh. was. It, yeah. In the end, I was like, yes, you jumped the gun. Awesome. You jumped the gun. Yeah, you, you didn't get yeah, to the epilogue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got to the epilogue and I, I listened to that and I thought, man, you know, that conversation we had, yep. that's such a great story. Um, you know who Jason Knight is? Uh, yeah, the knife maker. Yeah. 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 So I went up to his place. Uh, it's been a month or so ago and we forged some knives nice. and, uh, we were sitting there by the press and we're doing some stuff and he had said something and, and I'm like, I'd figured out he was a Christian dude. Cause we were at Chow and he said a prayer and I'm like, okay, well that's, we're on the same sheet of music here. So we're sitting there and I said something about Ehud. He goes, Oh, Ehud. And then we just got going with like the, some of the stuff that's not in that story mm -hmm. about him that you have to find out the backstory. Like it would have been a bronze dagger. And for the people that don't know what we're talking about, Ehud the assassin was a left-handed guy that went to kill King Eglon. He took a dagger that he made. Like I said, it would have to be bronze because for two possible reasons. One is the Jews were not allowed to, to own iron. And then two, it might've been actually before that anyway. So it was bronze, which bronze would have been made by mixing copper and tin, you know, heating them up and then pouring that into a mold. And that's how you would have made that dagger. Well, what, what Jason said, he goes, and it was a cubit long. It's like, that thing was like 18 inches long. And he had that strap to his leg. And then it makes more sense when he says he killed King Eglon, when he stuck that in him, that guy was so fat that that dagger went all the way inside him. Wow. So it's, it's a great story. I know that once you read it, you were like, whoa, yep. this is awesome. As soon as you, know? you left, I wrote, went right into my office and, uh, and, like, and wrote that down. Like, put this in the epilogue right there. Well, and I started, when I, when I wrote that chapter, I sent it out to a, a guy that's a preacher, a friend of mine, and then another guy that had been a missionary. And both of them came back. They said, well, first of all, he wouldn't have made this out of iron, so he didn't forge it. And the second thing is he wouldn't have went out and tested it on a pig because he's a Jew. Because mm. he wouldn't touch a pig. A pig's unclean, so he wouldn't have done that. So I'm like, oh, man, I learned something. Let me get in there and write something that makes you smarter so it's not just a Bible story that's enhanced so that it's fun for guys like us to read. But it's also an instructional, uh, you know, like, how do you make a form out of sand? And how do you pack that sand down? And how do you, you know, to make a wooden... Uh, model of that and lay it in the sand. It, it's just, it was a learning process for me. And uh, yeah, so then, you know, every, every time I wrote a chapter in that book and it's, it's not done yet, but I tried to kind of learn, you know, another one was Mordecai and Esther. So Queen Esther, well, before she was a queen, she, uh, King Xerxes, he uh, kicked his old lady out and he was looking for a new queen. And this Jewish gal, Esther, she ends up becoming the queen. And it's an awesome story because she basically saves the tribe of Israel. Well, it wasn't Israel at the time. It was the Jewish nation that was spread throughout the whole Persian empire. Uh, she was a ballsy gal to do what she did with her, her cousin, Mordecai. It's a great story too. So I took that and I, I tried to dig deeper and, 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 you know, I, I hate to use the term embellished because when you're talking about Bible stories, I don't think embellished is the right word. Yeah, no, you're but, like, uh, add some, uh, I don't know, modern flavor or connection to it, maybe yeah, something like yeah. that. 
Yeah. So it, it, all of them, you know, some of them make you kind of wonder if you could actually do what they did, which most of the time my answer is probably not, but you know, like uh, this one, I don't know if we talked about this or not, but when Joshua got put in charge of, of the Israelites, when they came back in, Moses died and couldn't, he couldn't go back in the promised land because God said, well, you guys wouldn't, you know, wouldn't listen to what I said. There's only two guys that listened. That was Caleb and Joshua. When they did their reconnaissance, they came back and said, yeah, there's giants. Yep. They're big and their cities are strong, but we can whoop them. And they were the only two uh, snipers that went out. You know, they weren't snipers, but they were recon dudes. When they, when they came back, they said they could do it. And God said, well, the other guys, or Moses said, well, the other guys said, we can't, so we're not going to do it. And then God said, well, for every day that you conducted this recon, you're going to wander for a year in the desert. So for 40 years, because it took them 40 days to do that reconnaissance, for 40 years, they wandered in the desert till everybody had died except for Caleb and Joshua. And they were the two that got to go into the promised land. And then they were going to go fight these people. So one of the first places they went, <clears throat> if you look on a map, this gets really interesting. So they crossed into the promised land and they ended up going to Jericho. Well, to get to Jericho, they had to cross the, the, uh, um, the river Jordan. So Joshua did something similar that Moses did. And they, you know, he talked to God and God said, okay, I'm going to part the sea and you got, here's, here's your instructions. So they crossed over that. They crossed over the, uh, the Jordan that just stopped, boom, they crossed, they got on the other side and he's got all these dudes are going to hit Jericho. And he said, okay, we're all here and we're going to do hit Jericho. But God just told me that before we can do that, uh, you bros that are not circumcised have to get circumcised. How would that go over at the MSS? If you showed up <laughs> in Iraq or Afghanistan and all of a sudden your commander come in and said, Hey guys, uh, if you're not circumcised, before you can be part of this mission, you got to go get circumcised with a, a a sharp piece of rock, you know. I guess some things are uh, we have evolved in some sense, I guess, uh, where that might not have gone over so well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we might have had a couple of questions come out of that uh, <laughs> that op word, you know. Oh man, well, were you always religious growing up? Because I know uh, in in Somalia in Mogadishu, uh, when you're left out there overnight in uh, in that battle, you're you're saying a prayer in the middle of that where did you grow up um religious sunday school that sort of thing or did you, is it something that yeah. you evolved i i did into? but i what what i would say and i would say this to the to the guys and gals that listen to your podcast you know being a christian and having faith and being religious to me are two different things i'm a christian and i have faith and i've used that to help me when i'm when i've been weak and i've also stumbled a lot along the way. A lot of guys think, you know, that if you stumble, well, you're just done. Or how could you dare go step into a church or, or step up and, and say some of the stuff I've said when you've stumbled as badly as I have along the way? Um, well, I, I'm forgiven because of my Christianity. And I'm not trying to use that as a crutch or an excuse, but it's, that's given me the strength along the way. Now, just, and this is my opinion, this is probably not anywhere in the Bible, but my opinion is that if me cussing or some of the things that I've done, I, I'm, I was a warrior. So when you read the Bible and you look at what the warriors in the Bible did, they did things 
as bad, if not way worse than we ever did on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. King David, um, Gideon, Joshua, all these, all these great warriors throughout the, the Bible. Um, now, there were certain things that, that happened to them later. You know, Benaiah, who was this awesome dude that was one of the chosen men of, of King David, it, they, they weren't allowed to build the temple because they were, they were soldiers. So, you know, when King David, it ended up being his son, I guess, I think that was it, Samuel or Solomon, Solomon. He, uh, you know, he was like the perfect dude and he hadn't been a soldier. And I struggle with that as a Christian dude, like, well, wait a minute, I'm a soldier. Does that mean I can't, you know, be part of the kingdom there because of that? And, and I'm not trying to get all, you know, bring, <laughs> turn this into a church program or anything, but it's given me peace of mind to know that these guys had the same exact thoughts and struggles that we had. You know, when you think about King David, well, King David is a descendant of a prostitute, which if you know the lineage means that Jesus was a descendant of a prostitute as well. Cause Rahab was a prostitute that lived in Jericho. She was saved by the, uh, uh, the guys that went in there. Her family was the only, they're the only people that survived raising that city. So she ended up being like the great, great, great grandmother of a guy named Jesse. And Jesse's the father of, of King David and King David's in the same lineage as Jesus. So, you know, here's a guy, King David, that he did all kinds of bad things. I mean, really, really bad things. You know, we, we, uh, we all know the story about David and Goliath. That's, that's an awesome story. He went out and killed this, uh, killed this giant, took his sword and he took Goliath's sword, which was made out of iron and cut his head off. And then he took that sword. So that's another point in time where the Jewish guy takes the sword that he's not supposed to own because it's illegal for the Jews to own iron. You know, so that's interesting. Well, then later on when he actually is the king, there's a story about uh, him and this hot chick, um, Bathsheba. He's checking Bathsheba out. He's like, man, and in that, in that chapter, when they talk about that, the first verse says, in the spring, when the men went to war, David was basically in the rear with the gear. That's not where he should have been. If you're a commander, where should you be? You should be on the battlefield with your men. And, and so that's the very first point I took away from that was like, that's a great leadership lesson. Like, you're not going to get in trouble if you're doing your job. You're going to get in trouble when you're not actually present for duty and you're off, you know, gallivanting around doing whatever. But then he ended up having Uriah the Hittite, which was um, her, uh, her husband brings him back. He wants him to go sleep with his wife. He won't do it because he's like, my men are in the field. I can't do this. Well, he says, all right, no problem. I'm going to send you on the battlefield. You go back there. And then he tells one of his guys to take a message out there and and tell him to send Uriah the Hittite to the front line so he gets killed so that he can then marry Bathsheba. Now, it's bad that he did that, but what makes it even worse is, what if that guy was part of your detachment or part of your team, part of your squadron? And that's what he was. Uriah the Hittite was one of the chosen 30 dudes that David, they were his inner circle of people. So it's not only that he he killed this guy because he wanted to get to his old lady, but he killed a a friend, a comrade, a soldier that served under him, that looked at him and respected his leadership, and he had him killed. So um, 
you think General Petraeus had some issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a few stories like that throughout time. And actually, you talk about it in your in your book here. You talk about great leaders, good leaders, bad leaders, dangerous leaders, malicious leaders. Um, but uh, before we get to that, before you came up with that and saw that throughout your army time, did you always know you were going in the military, or did you? And did you? And if you did, did you always know you were going special operations, or how did that? What did that look like for you growing up and making that decision to join? So I, I grew up rodeoing, um, riding horse, you know, doing, uh, we grew up on just like a little dirt farm in South Dakota. So I always was riding horse. I was always shooting. I shot competitively with the air rifle just for, you know, it was nothing fancy. It was these little lever action uh, air rifles that we would shoot in these JC's competitions. And I played baseball, football, ran track, uh, played in the band. Uh, I played the piano. Wow. So there's a, there's a bunch of different things I had going on. Once again, I'm like a, a squirrel there, so I'm all over the map. But I wanted to join the Army. There's a lot of things I wanted to do. I want to be a professional bull rider. But then I realized that I suck. <laughs> so, so I probably ought to look for a different occupation. Um, <laughs> At least you came to that early on, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I realized that early on. So then I met Melinda when we were kids. And at that point, I'd kind of thought I was going to join the military. And she said she didn't want me to join the military. Hmm. Just because it, where we grew up, nobody, not, not a lot of people understood the military. Hmm. And I'd say they probably still don't in that area, other than there's been quite a few of us from that area that have joined the military. So... I said, okay, I won't join the military. And a couple months later, she goes, so you would not join the military for me? And I go, yeah, I mean, I'm in love, you know, I'm not, I'll do whatever this lady tells me to do. And she goes, well, if you, if you marry me before you go, you know, then it would be fine. And I was like, I do. So <laughs> I, uh, it wasn't, it was, I wouldn't say it was a, a, a plan. I always did stuff like that. Ever since I was a little kid, I was always trying to innovate with my kit that I was taking out to hunt gophers or deer or whatever. Um, I liked the adventure. Always, everything I did was kind of an adventure. We lived out in the middle of nowhere, so I could go any direction from our farm and I wasn't going to run into anybody for days. And I do that sometimes in the middle of winter. And I just go out there and do a survival exercise when I didn't know that's what it was called. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so then I ended up, Melinda and I got married a couple of weeks before I left for the military. I joined in 1986 and I stayed in for 21 years. And what, what we quickly realized when I joined the military was it was, it was perfect for me. I mean, there's no, I can't think of another job other than maybe being a law enforcement guy that would have been close to anything that I, that I wanted, you know, that's the, you know, you hear about these guys that are these sponsored hunters and it's like, yeah, that's the military. Everybody in the military is a fully sponsored hunter. You know, you wear the U.S. Army name tape. That's your, your, that's sponsor. your sponsor's. Yeah, that's your sponsor's logo there. Um, did you know about yeah. special operations then, or did you would you look at the Marine Corps at all, or did you just think, hey, Army infantry, here I go, or what did you had you seen some some movies or read any books about special operations in Vietnam or anything like that, or what was uh, what what did you aspire to do when you when you were first walked into that recruiter's office and then walked out of that office? I wanted to join the military. I had no, I didn't have any, I didn't know what I didn't know. Now there were some movies. I mean, Rambo, we've talked about that mm -hmm. first blood. That was to me, that's a, and I don't even know if that, I'm trying to remember if that came out before I came. First blood or, for sure did. And then first blood part two was in 85. So right before you came. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, first blood was, I don't know. That was to me, that's still one of the greatest movies of all time. I mean, it's, yeah, it's really, really good because of you. I read the book, the David Morrell book. Mm -hmm. A little different. Oh yeah. But I'll tell you that book is amazing. It is. It's never been out of print for uh, what? 50 years now. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, that's a really, really good book. And then uh, I read another one. Um, what was the one I sent you a picture of oh, a while one? back? Which uh, I don't know. You sent me a few pictures. Uh, of, of it book. was first. I, I read First Blood and I read the other book that you told me to read. Oh, What's, Once an was, Eagle? No. Is that the one of it? The, the, big, the one where one? the guy goes out. No, no, no. This is a little thin book. It's uh, the guy goes out. Um, Rainsford. Oh, yeah. A, a Most Dangerous Game. Man, that's an awesome book too. Yeah, 1920. Yeah, so I read or 1924 that came out. Yeah, and what that did is it allowed me to get inside your brain a little bit more. <laughs> and it's man, you're jacked up, bro. <laughs> you're not the first person to to say that. They read some things that I recommend or read my books, and they're like, "Wait a sec, how come you're so nice on the outside? There's some other, there's some other things going on in there." But uh, I think for all authors, that's probably or writers, that's always the you know the way it is. There's some you know, things you're exploring and writing is very, very therapeutic. Um, but I also stand what's, what's, what's appropriate in, uh, our modern society and what's not, uh, sometimes that's for the better. And sometimes it's not, um, there's another quote I, I use in Savage Son about, um, uh, how civilized men are, are actually less civilized than savages because they know they can insult you without having their head ripped off or something along those lines, Yeah, um, yeah. which is true. Um, but so, so where do you find out about special operations and did you go in, are you infantry or what are you doing right off the bat? No, no, I, <clears throat> I didn't go in as infantry because I wanted to learn a skill. Oh yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what, yeah so, what, did, what did the army I, teach you? The army uh, taught me how to carry a radio on my back. Hey. So I, I went in as a 31 Victor tactical communications and man, luckily I ended up going from, from basic and AIT at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which was a learning experience. Um, and then I went to jump school. Okay. Then after jump school school, they sent me the 82nd airborne. So I became a paratrooper there. And as a a 31 Victor, I was with the infantry guys all the time, but I wasn't an infantry guy. Okay. So I'm walking around carrying this radio, doing my thing. And I've been in about three years. My wife says, well, there's all these guys you look up to these green berets walking around Fort Bragg. Why don't you give that a shot? And I thought, well, there's no way. So I went to selection. I made it through selection. And at that point, they said, all right, you're going to be a, a special forces combo guy and you know, learn to send Morse code and everything. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that my special operations exposure, other than the movie Rambo, would be uh, being at Fort Bragg because okay. you're surrounded by yeah. uh, excellence there. I mean, yeah. you got so many cool cats there, whether it's the 82nd, which that's the only airborne uh, division in the free world. I mean, that's amazing. That's a, gr- a really uh, a great group of people there. And then you got the special forces groups that were there at the time. Seventh group was still there as well. <clears throat> and then, you know, every now and again, I'd run into a ranger or something. I mean, those guys were just God walking around and uh, yeah. So I decided, uh, yeah, I'll try out being a special forces guy. So I did that. And once I got in there, it, it just opened up a whole new 
world to me. There was a guy that I rode uh, motocross with that he had, <clears throat> he had had a unit guy come over and try to recruit him so that they, he said, I want this guy to meet you. So that guy came over to my house and I said, well, I'm going to try this SF thing for a while, but I'll keep you in mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was scared. I didn't know what to expect. And I went and did the SF thing for a while. Came back from Desert Shield, Desert Storm. What'd you guys do over there? there? Like you're still pretty junior at this point. You're doing the radio thing. Yeah. I think you went to Arabic was, was your language. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you put some time in there and was that, well, how was selection for you? Was it, uh, you did Robin Sage and the whole, the whole thing was like they, they do today. How was that uh, experience? Just the, the pipeline for you? Selection was, I mean, selection was tough. And I think the reason it was tough was because it's a team event. And if you've got weak members on your team or you got members that are too tall or too short, it's, I'm like the average size. I'm six foot tall. Uh, so I, I was one of those guys that was always employed carrying something because I, <laughs> I was the same height as, as most of the uh -huh. other guys on the team. And those other guys, they, they worked hard too. So don't, I'm not trying to take anything away from that. It just was, it was brutal on your body to, you know, carry five gallon water cans for five miles. That's ridiculous, but we did it. We just did it. We didn't, you know, I was too scared to quit. So I just kept doing what I was supposed to do. Then I got into the Q course and that's where, then I started to understand why people shoot themselves when they start to listen to Morse code every day for several months. Wow. Oh my goodness. That was, that is, that's nerve wracking. And then once I got through that, then things got better. And then I had to go back and do advanced Morse code stuff. Oh, and wow. um, once that was done, <clears throat> everything else was, was great. And I was lucky because going through the special forces course, there were several guys that came from Ranger battalions and they were there with me. Uh, I didn't know them until I got there, but those Rangers, you want to talk about the primo army or military infantrymen, it's the Rangers. I mean, there's nobody else that is at that level that those guys are. And because of that, it allowed those guys could kind of tutor me on the side, like, Hey, you're going to do an op order or warning order or whatever. Mm -hmm. This is, this is what you got to do. I learned more from my fellow students than I did from the instructors. Oh, wow. These guys were amazing. There, there was a, there was a guy and I was, I was getting my hair cut about probably been two years ago now. And I walk in this haircut place about a half hour from where I live. And there's this guy, Ray Brady, who was one of those dudes that helped get me through the Q course. And there he is. And he's like a living legend in fifth special forces group as well. Great guy. And I immediately recognized him and then he recognized me and we started talking. We had a great conversation and, and I hope to run into him again. I actually, I gave him my phone number. I never heard back from him, but if you know, Ray Brady, tell him to give me a call. He's <laughs> That's lives down the road from me here, but, but he, the guy was just an awesome inspiration for me. Yeah. And when you think of that, you know, a lot of guys think of inspiration like this, this guy that's this, I don't know, like some of you look up to and they're perfect and this and that. Nope. That guy's an infantry dude. Mm. That guy is an awesome, hardcore, tough, grumpy dude. And I learned so much not just from him, but other guys along the way there. But yeah, then when I finished that, I, I was in Arabic language school when, when Saddam invaded the first time. So I knew where I was going, mm -hmm. Desert Shield, Desert Storm. We didn't do a, a ton there. Um, some of the guys did. Some of us, I mean, I went out and set up remote base stations and stuff to, to, ref, you know, to communicate with some of the teams, but I wasn't doing anything real exciting. I ended up in Kuwait City and 
you know, that whole rigmarole, but nothing very exciting. So when I got back, I made up my mind I was going to go to unit selection. So I came back, uh, was in fifth group for a while, and then I ended up doing that. And it was, yeah. How was that selection for you? That was much easier than SF selection. Huh. Yeah, and the reason it was easier for me was at the time, and I would say at the time because I probably don't want to run, you know, eighteen miles with a rucksack right now. Yeah. But at the time, I was in very good rucksack shape. Um, physical fitness was not a, a huge difficult. I wasn't like a specimen like some of the guys were, but I was able to to do my thing. And then the other thing was everything in our selection was done alone. Mm. There there wasn't really a team event. So you had to rely on yourself. And I think that's good and it's bad. I think it's good for those of us that don't mind doing that. And I think it drove some people crazy because they wanted that camaraderie. They wanted more and you know, they wanted to kind of be served up like a soft serve ice cream. Like this is what you got to do today. Nope. Take your instructions from the chalkboard. Have a good one. That was it. That's all they told us. And you took your instructions and you did what the chalkboard told you. And that's it. And a lot of that's getting and, up from point A to point B a certain amount of time. Yep. You don't know the time limit though. I believe it's kind of based on uh, some SAS selection back in the day. Cause that's where Charlie Beckwith went in the six early sixties yeah. and yeah. you know, got yep. some of that and incorporated into uh, to your selection process. But uh, I like that too. I liked it. So in buds at the end, third phase, we have an orienteering course, nothing like what you do, nothing like what SAS does very basic. Um, but I'd kind of grown up on map and compass running around the, the Sierras. So that was for me. I just loved it. I was like, okay, boom, go. And I just run um, <laughs> to these different things. Because so yeah, once yeah. again, I don't think we had knew the time limit. It's possible that we did. Um, but maybe I think it was an overall time limit. But for me, I would just run with this rucksack on between these yeah. different points and yeah. knew how to do it. And so I kind of liked being out there on my own because it's one of the few times in Buds that you're doing something on your own. So so you do that. What, what you, I, it's kind of a mystery, right? Whether like all of a sudden you see somebody gone the next day and you're like, where'd that guy go? Yeah. Yeah, and either they quit or they got pulled. And I think one of the things that helped me was I went from being a land navigation dude in in special forces to learning how to orienteer. And to me, orienteering is really where it's at. Now, there's certain times in the military you've got to use, you know, very strict navigation. But orienteering, you're going in a, you're kind of going in a direction and you're looking at what's around you. And where our selection is held in West Virginia, you can look and you can see that prominent terrain feature on a map. Whereas at Fort Bragg, you got to kind of land nav because it, there's not a lot of, not a lot of things to look at, but I learned so much in the special forces course about that, that when I got to, uh, and then I learned a lot when I went to selection as well, which our selection, because they do give you some instruction there. And that's where I kind of realized like, Hey, pull the, pull the compass out and use it as a guide, but don't use it. Don't get sucked into it and, and walk a straight line. Cause if you do that, you're never going to get there. So it, it was, it was good. And I've continued, you know, when I go out hunting, I use a map and compass. Sometimes I, I, I do have Onyx on my map so that I can, or I can use those maps, but man, it always pays huge dividends, not just driving around, but when you get out in the woods, it's awesome. Oh yeah. No, it, it, having that, those map and compass skills are, uh, are so valuable one, because obviously if your modern stuff goes down, you're not totally in the dark, but it also allows you to confirm. Like I usually have a little, little GPS with me and I have I think three compasses when I go out, just one on my watch, just to be, do a quick little, okay. You know, not get one, obviously the, to, to pull out and do the full on map study and make sure. Yeah. So I have those, uh, those going, uh, kind of all the time. You just feel, uh, competent. 
when you have all that and yeah, not reliant yeah. on a single piece of technology, even if you have a second one, um, it's just, you just feel like you're more, more competent and more, uh, uh, independent. Uh, so I, I, I love I've, doing that. I started using a technique that my dad taught me as well. My dad was from, uh, he was born in America, but he was first generation American and he'd go someplace and he would say, which way's North. And once he got his, his calibration done, mm -hmm. he, he just was on it. And I, when I was a kid, I looked at that, like, what is he talking about? And then I would, cause I'd only been in South Dakota. I hadn't been anywhere. And I started going places and I would ask guys, or I'd look at my compass, which way's North. And then once I got that calibrated, um, honestly, I don't, I don't use my compass now. There's certain times at night you've got to do, you've got to use your compass because you can't keep your bearings. But when I'm out hunting, I use just big, broad brush strokes of the terrain. And I know which way is north because I've figured that out. And then I usually have the sun or something to indicate that. But I just think it's funny that my dad would always say, which way is north? And sometimes he'd have to close his eyes and kind of visualize like, okay, okay, I get it. I'm facing Canada now. So I know which way is north. All right, now let's go. And that after that, he would never ask again. And you know, that's he, good. He, I'm, I'm going to do that today when I get uh, the our, our littlest one back here. I'm going to ask him which way is which way is north. I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> that's I think it. I, it's it's something that I like. I said it stuck with me. My dad was born in 1911, so when I was born in '68, he was already old. But I picked up so many things um, from him. Do, do you know who Sinclair Lewis is? I feel like I should, but I can't make the connection a, right now. He's a yeah, he's a famous writer. Uh, he wrote a book called Babbitt, which is kind of, it's an old book and it's, it's just a book. There's nothing special about it, but it's been fun. I've been reading it here recently and there's so, it was written in like the 1920s and there's so many things that this guy says that sound just like my dad. No way. That's cool. And it's kind of fun. You know, even this guy's a, a city slicker and my dad was a country bumpkin. Uh, it's, it's fun when you see stuff like that and, and, and yeah. I hear my grand my granddaughter now. She says stuff, and I'm like, "Man, that's just what my dad would have said." Oh, interesting. But she's getting it from me. Oh, wow. You know, little bugger, or okay. you know, you know, so, just something yeah. like that that is not a normal thing that somebody says in the U.S. And he right. would say it, and now my granddaughter says it, and my grandson does too. But my little my little granddaughter, when she says it. It's pretty funny, you know? Okay. I love that. That's great. Making so, those connections. It's important for these kids to have touch points with those future generations. My daughter and I just went out to Pearl Harbor for the 80th anniversary commemoration events in December. And uh, so her great-grandfather, my grandfather, killed in World War II off Okinawa in 1945. And I had more wow. of a touch point because I was growing up with my dad watching Black Sheep Squadron on TV. And that's yeah. what he flew. He flew the Corsair. So that was like, and he never met his dad. His dad was killed while he was, uh, you know, very young, one years old. Um, but we got to sit there on the couch and watch uh, Pappy Boynton, watch uh, Robert Conrad yeah. play Pappy Boynton. Uh, got to meet Pappy Boynton before he passed, like the year before he passed away, have him sign the oh, book wow. for me and everything. So I, I had this touch point. I had my grandfather's medals and the silk maps they gave aviators back then and, and that sort of his wings. Uh, pictures of him and his squadron. So I had that touch point, but, uh, and we have those things here, but there's just, there's just more time has passed. Uh, and there's so many more distractions for these kids. So for her to go back to Pearl Harbor and we spent a week with these veterans age 96 to 104, getting them on and off the buses, in and out of the wheelchairs, to and from the rooms, to and from the different events. And for her to have this touch point, she's 16, um, with these, this other generation and was just life-changing. 
for her. And yeah. you know, they all yeah. loved telling her these stories. You know, she was the youngest one there. Yeah. And it was just such the powerful connection between these, these different generations. And for her to have that touch point with her grandfather's generation was, uh, was pretty special. I think we're going to make it to Normandy this, uh, uh, oh yeah. Normandy's amazing. Yeah. This, uh, yeah this Normandy is being an 82nd guy going to Normandy is a very special place, even though I was a 504 guy and they didn't jump into Normandy, but that that's a, it's just, there's so much, yeah. So much cool history there. We, my daughter, uh, she works for the government and she lived in England for a few years and, uh, she was stationed up close to Cambridge. So my wife and I would fly over there and, and we, we started researching or getting serious about researching where my family was from in England. So part of my family's Swedish, part of my family's English. My dad was an Englishman or my dad was American, but his dad and his mom were, were English. So we figure out Allendale on Tyne. So on the Tyne river, hmm. Northern England, Allendale, we end up driving up there. We're close to Hadrian's wall. We go check that out. And then we drive around and we go into this town that is the town where seven of my grandpas were born. Wow. And uh, we go in the little tavern there. It's a, a hotel with a, a little pub there. And we get some chow. And I said, do you know where um, Parola Meadows is at? And the waitress goes, nope, never heard of it. But I'll ask this guy. So she goes up to this drunk Englishman at the bar. You know, it's noon and he's already... He's already schnockered there, or, or he, he's not doing too well. Goes up there and and says, talks to him, and he's like, oh, yeah, just kind of grumpy. And we eat our food, and a little bit later, he walks over and he goes, "You're looking for Froler Meadows and whatever." You know, he's got this thick English accent, and yeah, that's what we're looking for. He's like, "Yeah, I don't know where it's at." And I was like, "Okay, all right, Roger that." So we get ready to leave, and he goes, "Froler Meadows." here's where you go. And he tells me, of course, he doesn't sound like that. He sounds like a Brit, but I'm not real good with the British accent. Tells us where to go. He says, you're going to drive out there and you're going to see, you're, you're going to come to a spot where there's five roads that come together. And when you get to those five roads, you're going to take the middle road and you're going to drive till you see this stone fence on your right. You drive down there a little ways and that's Froler Meadows. Okay. It's Northern England. Mm-hmm. Wooden fence. That's every every <laughs> or not wooden, but a stone fence. Every every fence is stone. There's not one wooden fence there. So we jump in the car. Melinda and I are driving our rental, and we head out there. Oh, there's the the where all these roads come together. This area was known for having a lead smelting uh, place. They had mining there, lead. There's a lot of these little horses running around because they use these horses inside of these mines, and uh, sure enough, there's that's got to be it. There's the stone fence. So I turn to go down by that stone fence and there's a, a pheasant standing on top of that fence. And I was like, this is like where I grew up in South Dakota. I mean, we didn't have stone fences, but we had the pheasants that were imported just like they imported them into England. We drive down there and it starts raining cats and dogs. And I'm looking at my wife and all of a sudden she goes, oh, there it is. And I stopped. And she goes back up and I back up about 10 foot and there's a little tiny sign that says Froler Meadows and there's one house there. So it's got to be the house that my family was from. And um, the guy had told us, don't mess with the dude in the house because he won't be real happy with you. So we just, I'd like to go back again so I could explore it more. 
but the flue for the, the lead smelting factory there, or whatever you call a lead smelting facility, went right through that property. And there was a door there. That door, they used to open that door, go inside the flue and scrape the lead off the walls of the flue that had whatever they processed, what didn't get processed would turn back into lead as it was going down this flue and they'd scrape that off. So you can imagine how healthy that yeah. was for people to do that. But it was very, uh, it made me, you know, no offense to the people in Allendale, England, but I'm really glad that my grandpa at five or six years old was thrown onto a boat by his mom and dad and brought to America. And uh, he almost didn't survive. They, he was real sick on the way over. And they said, one more day, if he's still sick, he's getting thrown overboard because we can't risk we can't risk the whole ship getting sick from this little wow. kid. Wow, you know, I've never thought and, about that before. Yeah, and he made it, you know. And at that point, you know, 30 to 60 days to get from from somewhere there in England. And I'm not sure where they launched, but the, you know, the good thing is that Northern England area was attacked by the Vikings a lot. So there's also a lot of Viking heritage on my English side, yep. not just on the Swedish side, but it's uh, it's a beautiful part of the country. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And it was fun to see just to kind of, to dig into your past a little bit there. Oh my gosh. Imagine throwing a sick child overboard to save yeah. the rest of oh, the yeah. ship. I mean, if people would take a second to realize how lucky we are to be in this country and, you know, I think a lot, I try to remain very positive. I try, uh, and I'm very hopeful, but it's getting exceedingly difficult to remain hopeful in the times that we are in. And I think if, if, uh, if we had a new world to go to that was, uh, across some ocean, I would have already, I'd be in the middle of that ocean right now on a ship going there. Um, well, there is a new world to go to. Mm. It's called America. It's still the new world. It really is. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but dude, you know, we, we, our lives, what did our lives entail? We, we trained and trained to fight terrorists. Well, guess what? When our country started, you know what we're doing? We're fighting terrorists. You talk about the Barbary pirates and going to Tripoli. I mean, it's even in the song that the Marines mm -hmm. sing, it Sure is. you know, when, when Jefferson violated it, he pulled a Trump, he violated what he was supposed to have the power to do. And he sent he sent people over there and they became enslaved. So think about that. Think about yeah. you as a Navy dude going to, to Tripoli, becoming a slave for the Muslims. I mean, doesn't this sound like Some a great crazy, books on it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, but it's, but it's, it's, it sounds like fiction, but it's not. Yeah. And that's still the fight that we've got. And I'm not just saying, you know, that we're fighting Islam or whatever, because I've got, uh, I've got some friends that are Muslim. They're just, you know, they're spectacular people. But the terrorists were still fighting the same terrorists that we were fighting in the early 1800s when, when, uh, when we did that. So I'm more thinking yeah, about fighting crazy. amongst ourselves here. That uh, yeah, like in that yeah. last book, the Devil's Hand that you that you held up. That's the one where I wanted to put myself in the enemy's shoes. Uh, think about what they've learned from us by watching us on the field of battle for the last 20 years. What do they take from the 20 years before that, and uh, what are they incorporating into their battle plans? And after doing that, and then of course COVID hits and they're looking at our response to that. Then summer of civil unrest hits while well, I'm writing that book. They're taking lessons from that. And my takeaway was, man, if I was the enemy, I probably wouldn't do much right now yeah. because we're doing such yeah. a good job of killing ourselves from the inside. I just step yeah. back and take a breath and wait. Um, of course, I had to figure that out because that wouldn't make much of a book if I just had enemies sitting yeah. around watching. So yeah. I had to figure that out, <laughs> yeah. which I did. But, uh, but that, was my, that, was, that was a problem. I had to figure that out. 
uh, and I, you know, for the novel, but, uh, gosh, that's, uh, it's just, it's disheartening. It is definitely, well, I think the, you we know, we have it too easy is what I'm, but the, going back to that, yeah, we yeah, have yeah. so easy that we've decided to destroy ourselves, um, rather than be appreciative of the freedoms that we have, take advantage of these opportunities, move the ball forward for the next generation and hand these freedoms off that we were given by generations of people who gave, paid the ultimate sacrifice so we could be free. That's why I love that you're into history and I love that you're writing and I love that you're passing on these lessons. I try to get people to read as much as I possibly can. Just read, 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 put down the phone, all those distractions. That's what we owe those generations that came before us is to put that requisite time, energy, and effort into the study of history so we can make wise decisions going forward. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, I, I don't see a lot of that happening. Yeah, I, I try to keep, to be honest with you, man, I try to keep a positive attitude because I do feel that it's, we still live in the greatest country in the world. Yep. So we're, we're, we're still doing really well. And, and there's a lot of fat people and I'm one of them walking around that <laughs> is overfed and overslept and underworked and all the stuff that we have wanted here in America. Uh, but even if we go back into our just recent history in the 1750s, when we were fighting, fighting Indians and, and fighting the French, you know, we learned a lot by watching how the Indians fought. The Brits didn't learn that because they were superior to the Indians. The Americans didn't look at it that way. When you look at George Washington, when he was fighting, he didn't look at the Indians disrespectfully. He looked at them like, we need to learn from how their fighting is. And then we went on to St. Clair's defeat. And if you're familiar with that battle where a thousand men, women, and children were killed, uh, that, that St. Clair didn't learn because he was the leader at the time. Well, who learned? Matt Anthony Wayne, he, he learned. So the next time there was a battle, they took it to the Indians. So, I mean, we still have to learn that process of, one, the enemy's learning from us, but we better be learning too. Look what's going on in Ukraine right now. Ukraine is horrendous. And I don't know what the answer is, but it's definitely not let the Russians come in there and subjugate the Ukrainians. You know what I'm saying? I mean, how can we, what can they do to, to better that fight? It's a civil war. What can we do to help them? And what can we do to support our other friends that have been uh, treated poorly by the Russians, whether it's the Polish or who, you know, the Polish, you know, a bunch of the Polish dudes, I'm sure. Drum, yeah. They're unbelievable. Yeah. And they are so proud of their country. So proud of their military, not just the military guys, but when you walk around Poland, they're a very proud people as they should be. They've fought. They've done nothing but fight. So I think, you know, if, if one, if we can read history, but if we can then learn from that history, um, I understand our enemies and, you know, we say that they're learning from us, but I will say that we've learned a ton from them too. If, if the shoe was on the other foot and we, we could use the techniques that they use, we would devastate our enemy. I'm thinking more of in the, strategic sense in that, uh, yeah. we had, you know, we, we didn't even have to go back to Alexander the great. We didn't have to go back to Genghis Khan. We could have gone back. We didn't even have to go back to three British excursions in the 1800s and early 1900s. We could have looked at the Soviet experience, uh, which was not that long ago. If you look at it from 2001 back, uh, and then we well, had, you're talking about, yeah, yeah Afghanistan, we had 20 years of our own experience yeah. there to learn from. And still we end it the way we do last August. I mean, it is almost unbelievable and no accountability at senior levels. Uh, of course, there's always accountability at those junior levels, very fast to uh, hold ourselves accountable, 
at that level, yeah. but then also yeah. to be held accountable uh, at that yeah. level. Senior level leaders continue to fail upward. Uh, not, that has not changed over the last 20 years. So that part's a little disheartening, but when I talk about history and learning from it, and just as you did, uh, to see the way we left there, I mean, we come on, I mean, we had all the data there. We had all that experience there and still we rushed to our death. Still, we rushed to failure where we did not have to, we could have taken a little you, bit of time. You, you've read the book, the great game. Oh yes. Everybody should read that book. Oh my goodness. That's one of yeah, that's one of the the greatest books I've read in the last two years. If every leader that, has read that book on uh, September twelfth, two thousand one, uh, yeah. we might have had a little different experience. We might have had a different experience come December of two thousand one, January two thousand two, and the next twenty years may have been a little different if everyone had, yeah. had those senior level leaders had read that book. Ah, sorry, it gets I get a little. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a that's a spectacular book, and like you said, there's a lot of lessons learned. It was funny, and I can't remember what what all the books were I was reading at the time, but I was reading, the, I read a lot of books at one time. I can't focus. Yeah, you told me that to, before. You read a, a whole yeah. period, right? If you're reading something about the Civil War or Gettysburg, you read about every book you can find on that. Well, I actually, I, I found a better way to do that. I, I read about a bunch of different wars at the same time now, because then I can keep the book straight. Otherwise okay. they start to overlap. Yeah, yeah good point. But I, at, at this point, I was reading a book about our, um, our, our experiences in Afghanistan. I was reading The Great Game. And I was reading another book and I can't for the life of me remember what the other one was, but all three of them said the exact same thing. And those books were, every book was at least, you know, 40, 50 years apart. Yeah. And it, it you know, speaking of, of how they dealt with the Afghanis, nothing's changed. It's not like we could come in there and, and change their minds. That's not going to happen. They're going to continue to operate the way they do. And I don't hold them. I, I honestly, I, I think that if there's terrorists there, then we, we should hunt them down and, and kill them where they sleep. That's fine. But when we're done with that, then we should leave and let the Afghanis go back to being who they are. Just like in America, we all, you know, everybody wants to bitch and moan about what we did to the Indians. Well, if we just would have went in and killed the bad Indians and then left them the way they are, they could have done their own thing. What that is, I don't know. It could have been good. It could have been bad. But we always want to go in and try to make people be just like us. How about we just stay as the tribes that we are? My tribe is the same, same tribe as you. We get along fine. We don't agree on everything, but we see absolutely eye to eye on 90% of the stuff out there. And I can sit and talk with you and have that disagreement. and We don't get pissed. Well, then stay with your tribe. Don't, you know, everybody's like, oh, we're all the same. No, we're not. We're not even close to the same. Don't try to, to, to say that I've got to be like an Afghani or an Afghani's got to be like me or I got to be like a Russian or a Hawaiian or a dude from New Zealand or uh, somebody from Africa. Or if you're in Africa, we don't want the South Africans to act like they're from Botswana or from Zimbabwe or wherever. So I think that um, to me, find people in your tribe and, and be with those people and protect those people. If that, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but. Yeah. I mean, throughout time, I, there's been borders, there's been common language so we can, we can talk. There's been common culture. So you have a, a foundation from which to, to build these societies that have given us all these amazing things and these long life. And um, yeah, so there is definitely something that to, to there's definitely something to that. Um, I, I was talking to these guys in hunting camp and I said, you know, it's kind of funny. I, 
I hang around with people that were military, law enforcement, hunters, shooters, you know, and then some are, are, uh, farmers, I guess, just because I had to kind of, I grew up with those people, but I start to figure out, you know, who my tribe is. And when I say that, I never said Christian because I don't think that the, that is the tribe. I don't think that that is a tribe. I think that Christianity is your, that's, that's your belief system, you know, spiritually, but that doesn't mean that I can't get along with somebody that's Jewish or I can't get along with somebody that's Muslim or, or whatever their religion happens to be, but it is, it's the mindset. And when you go into Iraq, you've been to Iraq. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you right now, the people in Northern Iraq, their mindset is a whole lot closer to my mindset than somebody from New York. Mm. And when I say New York, I'm talking about the city. I'm not talking about New York, the mm-hmm. state, because when you go into Northern New York, the state, guess what? They act exactly like people do in Tennessee, but they have a different accent. Mm. You go to South Dakota and you go out to the farmers. They sound just like they, they got the same thought processes of somebody that lives here in Tennessee. You go out to Park City and they're all a bunch of Fruit Loops, right? Yeah, we got a lot of, a lot of those people <laughs> from New York, <laughs> LA, no, Silicon you, Valley you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you go, you go down the road and you run into Mike Glover. Yeah. Mike Glover is, what is he, Korean? Uh, yes. He's like Korean-American. Guess what? He's part of our tribe because his thought processes are exactly the same. I like what he's done, and he's bringing people in um, to be part of that tribe. And he's not trying to, to, you know, I'm not trying to get some New York lawyer to become part of my tribe. If he's a shooter, well, then we got something to talk about or a hunter or whatever. But we all have to give a little there. But, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it, it makes sense to me in my, in my weird, my weird yeah. mind. No, I mean, I think hopefully, hopefully it, it comes down to freedom for, uh, for everyone as our foundational principle, um, and, uh, and being able to take advantage of uh, different opportunities that you create for yourself, no matter where you what you're born into. We all know people that were born into what you think is an amazing life where they never have to worry and see them just crash down. You've seen people born with absolutely nothing that are running the biggest corporations and are the richest people on the planet, like, and everything in between. Um, so hopefully it all comes down to, to freedom and individual responsibility at some point for everyone. But, uh, but going back, I think, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say going back to, uh, to get to, to get to Iraq. There are a few things happened between, between desert storm and, September 11th, 2001. So we have a uh, 10 year period ish right there. And, uh, and during that time you go through selection and you get to your first squadron. And what is it like walking in to your first squadron? Um, and, uh, did they even call them squadrons right then? But anyway, you walk into your first, to your first team, your first, no, we did. Okay. We changed a little later, I think on, on the Navy side. Yeah. Of the you house. guys copied us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's true. Well, we, but, but now in the, it, I'm, I know I'm, I say yeah. that we copied the Brits. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, we, yeah, I walked into C squadron and I, I met these guys and I'm like, Oh my goodness, what have I done? Really? These dudes are, these guys are awesome. And I'm just this, you know, this young dude, I was very young at the time. And I come in and I meet my team leader, John Hale, and still one of the greatest leaders that I've ever been exposed to. He was just a, a man among men, you know, um, unbelievable. I met Matt Ryerson, uh, who was the, I was on a team. John Hale was my team leader. 
C-team was Matt Ryerson, just another guy that I learned so much from. He was killed in Mogadishu. Um, he was the best shooter in the unit at the time and just, just something else. But yeah, it was, I heard, uh, and this was, I didn't come up with this. Another guy named uh, Kevin Turan came up with this. He said, I've never worked so hard to be mediocre. Wow. And that's how I felt there. Like I could shoot. I mean, at that, when I got there, I thought I could shoot. And then I met a guy like Matt Ryerson. And I realized that I couldn't shoot and I needed to learn more from, from guys like him. And he took me under his wing and, and don't think that under the wing is a coddling thing. It's mm. more like under the wing so he can punch you right in the, in the mouth. But he, uh, he taught me so much about competitive shooting and then tactical shooting. And then I kind of carried that on after he passed away. I, I was kind of the guy in our squadron that was the shooter dude and, yeah. and, and did a lot of that. So yeah, it was, it was kind of unnerving. I, my team leader brought me into a team room and he said, yeah, man, welcome to the team. Do what needs to be done. Hmm. Took me a while to figure out what that means, but now I understand that. Do what needs to be done. That's all, that's all of our responsibility, no matter where you you rack and stack as a leader or as a subordinate. If you look around you and you do what needs to be done, your team will be successful. But if everybody's looking around going, oh, that's somebody else's responsibility, right. you're gonna fail. You're definitely gonna fail. So uh yeah, I don't know. I got a, a friend of mine who's showing up later tonight. A guy named Jesse Betcher. He was one of the team leaders that worked for me when I was a troop sergeant major. Just one of the greatest leaders I've ever met. And I'm so excited. Like he's going to show up here. And, you know, I said, we're going to get a, we're going to do a podcast and talk about leadership. I, I got to learn some. He's like, what can I teach you about leadership? And I'm thinking, dude, we can all teach each other about that. But John Hale was the guy that first inspired me and he gave us responsibility. And, you know, he, he delegated authority, but he maintained that responsibility for good or bad. Whatever happened was his was on him. But he let us have enough, you know, enough line to to hang ourselves with. And I think as leaders, that's I learned. I just learned so much from. And that book you read is, you know, his name is in there. Um, he struggled, you know, when he came back. He lost his best friend over there, Earl Fillmore, and he struggled with that for many years. And uh, you know, he ended up taking his own life a few years ago. And it, it's, that's another, another lesson learned that maybe this sounds terrible to say, but it's something he taught me, you know, what, what can I take away from him doing that, that I can learn from. And I think that, uh, I don't know, talking, I, I, I stay in touch with one of his brothers and his brothers taught me a lot about what John was, how he was suffering and what he was going through. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a tough thing, but yeah, not, you know, I'm not trying to be sad or anything here because I think that all the lessons that he taught me were positive. Mm -hmm. Even that lesson ended positively for me. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Like he's, he passed away, but if, if you just let him go and say that because he did that, he's a bad person or anything like that, you're wrong. You're so wrong. You don't know what the struggles are that he's going. You, you look at guys left. I don't know what struggles you're going through. I don't know. You can be this guy on the outside, but in the inside, you know, what are your struggles? You know what I'm saying? So it's I think really that, uh, yeah, it makes it, it's, it's really made me think and reflect and try to 
one to to help other people. I mean, you want to help yourself too, but the best step that you can make, no matter who you are, is to help somebody else. Yeah. If you help somebody else, guess what? Your problems don't seem quite so significant anymore. Yeah, um, so true. I try to pass on to the kids, never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day, you know, no matter how, oh, yeah, how large yeah. or small. Yeah, I had a guy the other day, he said, well, first you got to take care of yourself. That's a bunch of crap, dude. That is a bunch of crap. Because the first thing, first thing that Jack Carr does when he gets up every day is he takes care of his, care of his family. That's right. There's nothing more important to you than your family. That's right. I know that. I've been there. I've seen your family. You, you are you're a great dad. You're there with them. You're, they're, you're there to do what you need to do. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have to do your job, but you ultimately are taking care of your family. And if, if people are, you know, they don't have families, but they got people around them that they can help, this whole cop-out about you got to take care of yourself first is a bunch of BS. You got to take care of other people because in doing that, it's going to help you tenfold. So, you know, I get it. You know, these guys, they, they've got these self-help videos and this and that, looking out for yourself and blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not on that. Yeah. I'm not on that uh, chain. The, uh, uh, yeah, one get, of the things, what's that? No, I was going to say from the military background, who do you take care of? I mean, you're, the guys. 100%, yeah. the guys that you were going to lead into battle come first before. And, and that's the case where they probably do, they do come before, before family. Um, and that's when I had to have a talk with my wife and we all, she understood that from the beginning, especially more after the war kicked off, like you're taking these guys downrange. We owe it to them, their families, uh, the mission, the country for that pendulum to be on that side right now as a leader. Um, certainly not taking care of myself. I'm taking care of those guys 100%. Uh, and in doing so, we're going to accomplish the mission. Um, yeah. And I, and I think that you've got to be smart enough to let that evolve. Like yeah. when you're down range, they're number one. When you come home, your family's number one. When your family's, you know, whatever. I mean, there's, yeah. there's going to be times in your life that, that things change slightly. If, if you have somebody in your life that's struggling, and I know your wife, if you go to your wife and you say, I got to go help this guy, you know what she's going to say? Roger that. Yeah. She's going to do that because your wife is the same as you. So you're, you know, when I say your family is the most important thing, it is today, but there might be an hour in that day that you've got to go, you know, you got to go help somebody else out. Um, I've been reading a bunch of uh, stoic stuff lately. That's funny. Me too. I'll, yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you why I, I got into it because I hear people talk about stoicism and I hear guys like, uh, oh, who's the guy with the Ferris? Uh, Tim Ferris, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, he talks about, about yeah, he talks about um, Seneca. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, who the heck is Seneca? So I started researching this guy. Oh, he's this stoic, rich dude that worked for Nero. And I'm like, pretty easy to be stoic when you're rich, <laughs> you know, there's a and couple the guys end, throughout history that, uh, that, that also have come from that same background that, uh, yeah. Uh, well, it, but then reach. I, I, I dug deeper into that. So Marcus Aurelius, I started reading some of his stuff and then I started reading Epictetus. I don't know if that's how you say his name, but that's how I pronounce it. And, um, I read a book by, um, one of your mates, Admiral Stockdale. Oh yeah. And he wrote a book. I got it here somewhere. Yeah. Love it's, uh, it's the thoughts of a fighter pilot. Just a second. Yeah, yeah. 
get the name of it right now. I got a huge bookshelf right beside me here. Sorry. I love it. So uh, thoughts of a philosophical fighter pilot. There it is. So he talks about Epictetus and how he got him through being incarcerated as a POW in in, Hanoi Hilton. So I, I started reading that guy's stuff. And that dude was a slave who had been uh, crippled since he was little. And he was adopted by a guy that worked for King Nero. But he, it's, it's just, you know, that's a guy that I can really, I can get behind because of what his background is. But I, I started hearing some guys in our, in our line of work, yeah. yeah, our circles, talking about stoicism. And whenever I think about stoicism or anything like that, I, I try to think, okay, well, how does that apply to Christianity? So I started to read to see what these guys said about their faith. And so far, every one of these guys I've read, and I've only read, you know, a half dozen of them, but they all come back and talk about faith in God. Now that's I'm not saying that they're all believing in the same God, but they had their faith in God. So I've started looking at it from kind of from that perspective. I guess you would call that neo-stoicism because the Christianity tied with with uh, stoicism, but it's there's Seneca. I really want to hate this guy because he's the rich dude, but guess what, <laughs> man, his writings are amazing. And, uh, anyway, I've been, I've been digging into that a little bit deeper yeah. and with that, trying to help guys, you know, and, and, you know, what, what's going to be that approach when you talk to somebody that is struggling. And I think I've watched my wife talk to some of these guys and she's taught me probably more than anybody's taught me about how to deal with these guys. And she doesn't, cut anybody any slack. I think you've met my wife. I have, yeah. It's evident right off the bat. She's wonderful. Yeah, she she's she's hardcore. She's not going to cut anybody no. any slack, especially me, but the <laughs> I think that's the point that just because you're hurting doesn't mean that you can be a jerk to other people. Yeah. It just means that you're hurting. So, you know, how do we how do we fix that? Um anyway, I think I think we all have a lot to learn. I'm I study all the time because I don't I feel like I'm still stupid. You know, I, I want to try to become a smarter person, whether it's about history or about stoicism or about my Christianity or about um, writing or whatever it might be. So, yeah, it's. I'll be a lifelong student. I, yeah, being a lifelong student of, I consider myself a lifelong student of warfare, a lifelong student of the hunt. Um, just want to make myself a better person every day. Just move that ball forward. Just like with my writing, I want each book to be a little better. I want to move the genre forward, even if it's just by a degree. If we're mo- moving in that direction, each and every project, each and every day, that's uh, that's the goal. But the stoicism part, why I've started reading it more recently is uh, just because of what we talked about earlier, about what's going on in the country right now and not letting that uh, negatively impact me too much uh, in that there are certain things I can control and certain things that I cannot and not letting those things that I cannot control really impact me negatively other than to learn from that and turn those into a, into a positive. Yeah. So that's kind of where I was coming at it, but you, but in mentioned in talking about leadership and the amazing people that you, you just met who are mentioned who you, you talk about in, in this book who were influential on you um, in those couple of years before, uh, between the time that you showed up at your squadron and, uh, and going to Somalia, what was that? What was that like for you? Um, because I, I love how you, you write in the book, you write this, you say, um, and this is about 1993. You say your position was not at the top, not quite at the bottom, but 
it wouldn't have been a long fall. <laughs> so yeah. I love that. That's yeah. a great, that's a great line. Um, so what was it like to be in that, uh, in that squadron as a, as a sled dog operator, um, during, during those years, uh, in the lead up to, uh, to 1993? Well, it was, it was awesome because you're every day you did something different. You know, one day you're doing CQB, the next day you're doing mobility, the next day you're doing a water op, the next day you're doing a climbing thing. I mean, whatever it was for a guy like me, it kept me interested because every day was different. I always come back to the basics, which were CQB and shooting. And then of course, the most important, which is medical training. Those are the three things that I love more than anything. I love driving motorcycles. I love driving cars fast. I love, you know, climbing up buildings and doing all that. But what I love more is being the absolute expert at tactics. And I'm not saying I'm an expert. I'm saying that our units, our units that we came from, they are the experts. And how can we hone our skills to such a level that one, we can train the new guys to be at that level. But two, when we go into combat, we are at such a high level that we are exceeding the output of our enemy. So if an enemy is operating at hundred percent, I want my hundred percent to be up here. And actually then I can run at 90% where I'm completely comfortable and I'm still 20% better than the bad guy. Yeah. So the shooting, the CQB, and like I said, the most important one, medical training, those are, are those, those continue to rotate through the training schedule. And if I didn't get enough of any of them, um, I could always go down range and shoot whenever I wanted to shoot. So yeah. I did a lot of that. I competed on the weekends and everything. And then we, you know, we went to Somalia in 1993 and everybody thinks they're ready, but you don't know until you get on the battlefield. And I would tell you, when we showed up there, we were ready and we did our job like we're supposed to. But I would also say that if we went back to Somalia right now, we would be way better than we were back then. Our standards have changed. Our, our, our style of CQB has changed a little bit. Uh, definitely the equipment that we have is superior. The medical gear is better. Um, the Probably the best, and this you didn't ask this, but I'm going to say this anyway. Probably the best thing that came out of Somalia was that we passed those lessons learned on to the rest of the military. When you start looking at the gear that you carried in Iraq, mm -hmm. Almost everything you carried, you can take your lineage and tie that back to Somalia. Oh, yeah. There's SEALs in Somalia, too. Yeah. And they did, they did spectacular stuff. Um, you know Homer Near Pass? No. I was thinking two other, two other names, guys, that I, that I know fairly, fairly well that did some amazing things. They talk about it, you know, just to, to us, they talk about it. But, you know, no books or interviews oh. or that sort of a thing. Homer, Homer is a good friend of mine. That dude is just, he's just awesome. And he was there. He was, you know, he was one of the SEALs that was there with us. And I know that the lessons learned, he took those back to the command. We took those to the Rangers. We took them to the 82nd. We took them to AWG. And then they took them to the rest of the military. Um, the sad thing is, much like Korea, you know, we went into Korea with the guns that we had in World War II. So then we went into uh, Afghanistan with the guns that we had in Somalia, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like we, and now we've made some, we've, we made some improvements because we were, we were at war mm -hmm. now that there's not a combined war going on. A lot of people are starting and you see that in leadership, you know, the leadership starts to be become pathetic 
Whereas during, during Iraq and Afghanistan at the heyday, I think that from the colonel level down, we had, we had excellent leaders. Maybe not every one of them, but we had a lot of really, really good leaders because they knew they had to put the right people in charge so that they, they had warriors on the battlefield. They didn't have politicians. Yeah. So, no, I, I can't remember if it was, uh, so John G, I'll call him because I don't know if he does talks publicly about uh, being a sniper over there with you guys from the SEAL teams. I can't remember if I got this from him or just in studies in general of what happened down there, but it's certainly as a leader for me and after September 11th, you know, if, uh, if we were going out for something during the day, guess what we were bringing? Our nods. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Guess what? Yeah. If, this, if we had to have the the short, you know, ten and a half inch uppers or whatever, because we're getting out of vehicles and we're doing that sort of a thing. Well, guess what? If it's if it's past noon or a little bit, guess what's going on? Those things, suppressors, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. and same thing. Taking out a back plate only, uh, just wearing the the front plate negative. Although I did cheat once because I was doing the agency job and I had to squeeze in the back of the G wagon, the Mercedes thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I had my yeah. radio and I had, and so I, the, the plate, so I took the thin plate, the PSD plate that we got for a little bit. That was just that thin. I think I might still have one around here somewhere, super thin. And I put that in the back and then I wore the regular front plate because I had to squeeze into this G wagon. It was so hard to get around my radio to get out of that thing at night doing the job in, in Baghdad in 2006. And, but guess what? I had that back plate on like that one night when we got in an ambush. And guess what I was thinking throughout that entire firefight? I was thinking about oh, yeah. you guys. I was yeah. thinking about that lesson. I was thinking about just wearing that thin back plate. And then once after I got back from that firefight, I switched that thing out and put my, my big one back on and just made it a little more difficult to get in and out of that G wagon. We, we even go so far as when I teach a street fighter or a night fighter class, I teach people how to get in and out of a vehicle with all their gear on. Yeah. And, and a lot of guys look at me like, I don't need that. Oh, and then I show them and they're, and they're, <laughs> I show them and they go, oh, that actually does work. Because like there, a lot of guys that we hang out with are big dudes. Yeah. So I teach them how to go in head first so that then they can sit in the vehicle. Because if you try to go in butt first, you can't get your head down far enough because you got a chicken plate, you know, showing, stopping your head there. But yeah, it, it's, uh, Somalia was a learning experience and it was, it was kind of cool here back in October. Um, some of us got upgraded and our awards that. got, our awards got upgraded. And the cool thing about that was being able to go back and see some of the, I call them old timers, but I guess I'm one of those guys now too. <laughs> I was going to ask uh, you about that. Just this last year, it's only been a year and you received the, the silver star for your actions that day, all these years later, and got to meet up with some of the other people that were in that engagement with you. What was it like to meet back up with those guys all these years later? Had you, there were some guys that you saw then at that ceremony that you hadn't seen uh, in, a, yeah. in a number of years. There were guys that I, I my Sergeant Major, I hadn't seen him since probably 1994. Wow. And he hadn't really changed a whole bunch. I mean, he was a little bit older. And then I saw other guys that had been my, my SAR major and uh, other guys from the team. Some guys look very similar to what they mm -hmm. used to look like. And some, you didn't even hardly recognize them. And I mean, that's just kind of the way it is, no matter what. I, went, I got invited to go speak at my high school graduation this last year too. And this dude comes up to me and I, he's like, you know who I am? And I'm like, I have no clue. He goes, well, we roomed together at the state track meet before you left for the army. And I was like, I've flushed that all from my memory. I don't even remember that, wow. you know? And, and he told me who he was and I'm like, holy cow, you know? And, and he looks different, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. But yeah, it was really cool to see everybody that there was some, I don't know. I don't know what the right term is, but John Hale's daughter came in and received his award for him. That was tough, man. 
that was really tough. His daughter, Mackenzie, she's just a, a, a strong, strong young lady. And she was there to, to do that. And I just, I, I said a prayer before I went in there. I was like, okay, God, please help me get through this without being a blubbering idiot. Yeah. And I went up and talked to his daughter and, and kept it together. And uh, she's just amazing. She, she uh, when, when her dad, when she lost her dad, she, uh, within six months, her husband was an SF guy in 10th group and he also was killed in combat. And just a, 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 a rough, you know, you, we, we sit around and go, oh man, you know, <laughs> things are tough. I can point out a thousand people that have it tougher than you and I have. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. It doesn't take yeah. long to look no. around. You can't swing a dead oh, cat no. without hitting somebody that's got it worse, you know? Oh, so yeah. we, we, uh, made it through that. She's a tough young gal and it was really cool. It was, I had my whole family there. So having my grandkids, you know, my grandson might remember it because he's seven. My granddaughter's four, so I don't know if she'll remember it, but mm. it opened up a whole new line of questioning that they had for me because they had, they just didn't quite realize it, you know, and mm -hmm. it was, uh, yeah, it was really, it was cool. And then both, you know, my kids were there. My daughter's husband was there. My son brought his girlfriend. It was, it was, uh, wow. It was, it was cool. Yeah. It was incredible. When I saw, when I saw that was happening, um, I knew you were, you were going and, and doing that. Um, and, but at, so at that command, when you got the spin up, had another squadron already been there? Did you relieve somebody over there? Or were you guys the first squadron no, in? We were the first. Yep. Okay. So you guys hit the ground there and you're, what, what are you an E6? I was an E6. I was, I think I was 24. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I hadn't, I mean, I still had milk on my top lip <laughs> at that point. And, uh, I got to tell you, man, I mean, I'd been in, in, I'd, I'd heard some rounds go off and I'd heard some explosions when I was in desert shield, desert storm, but none of it was anywhere close enough to do any harm to any of us that at least where I was, um, I got over there and I tell you what, it was, it was a little nerve wracking because man, that's my first time in combat. And what I would tell you is once I had been there, it made it even worse, I think, like going into Iraq, because in Somalia, I didn't know what to expect. Mm. In Iraq, I kind of knew what to expect. And now I'm a leader in Iraq, and I didn't want to have, I didn't want to lose any guys in my troop in Iraq. So I was, I was, I don't know how to say it other than I was more scared for my guys. In, in Somalia, I was scared for myself. In Iraq, I was, I was worried about my men and what, you know, and how they were going to be, uh, how they were going to do, you know? And yeah, yeah it, it's, uh, that's the toughest thing, you know, when you think, when you think back to your service, losing guys on the battlefield, that's by far the toughest, you know, going through selection and doing all that. Um, that's not tough yeah. compared to going to combat and then having guys in your troop or your team or whatever, uh, get killed. It's bad, you know, if, if, if other soldiers around you get killed, but you don't know them, but if, if they're, they're your mates, it just takes it to a whole new level. And, uh, yeah, dealing with that's a little, that's probably the hardest thing I dealt with. Yeah. I mean, and for those that are listening, October 3rd and 4th of 1993, uh, that task force lost 18 guys in that one battle. Um, and, uh, so you, how long are you there before 
October 3rd. How many? How many uh, a couple months. Yeah, a couple months. Yeah. And, and you've we, done that six was missions, our, I think. You've done six like direct action, go into the into the city type of operations yeah. that were similar at that point. And uh, yeah. Yeah. What, 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 what was but your they, loadout on those? Like, what are you... And what was the spin up ahead of time back in the States? Like, did you have, uh, did you know a couple months in advance, hey, we're moving forces there? This is something that's on our radar. Or was it like, no. hey, bing, we're off? Well, we saw the news, you yeah. know, we could see what the Marines were doing there and what the Army was doing there. But then they started, you know, Clinton was the president at the time, Les Aspen was the Secretary of Defense, and they started pulling troops out of there. Um, I suppose, did the Navy have people there too? We did, yeah. Yeah, there's okay. some guys that took uh, some of the, I think probably the first sniper shot since Vietnam were taken in around that, uh, that okay. airfield. Yeah. But yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. So, so when we got there or let me go back to the spin up. So, and over the beach, remember the, over the beach where CNN yeah, is on yeah, the beach. Yeah. So we had yeah, that. Yeah. Well, that's a seal thing. Exactly. I was teeing that up for you. <laughs> no. So we, uh, a couple of us were in, I want to say it was a I'm pretty sure it was ANOC, the Advanced Non-Commissioned Officers Academy. So we're in school, got it. It's mandatory leadership, supposed to be leadership training. Um, and we're sitting out in the woods on Fort Bragg, just sucking. And these birds fly over. And me and my buddy were like, that must be the guys training up for a mission. Ha, ha, ha. I come back out of the woods a couple of days later. And I walk into the squadron and everything is different than it was when I left. And I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, we're going to Somalia. And I'm like, oh yeah. And they go, no, you're not going. And I'm like, I'm not going. They go, yeah, you weren't here for the train up. And uh, the secretary of defense has said only this number of people can go, which is stupid to me. Like you can't, you know, you can only send so many people. You should send what you need to complete the mission successfully. Well, they didn't, they, you know, they're not military people, so they don't understand that. Um, General Garrison was in charge of JSOC at the time, and he was a stellar leader. And he's like, we, we can do it with what we have. We're superior to those guys. We can do it. And I still believe that because we lost 18, uh, 19 with the, the fellow from the uh, 10th Mountain Group or 10th Mountain, 20 if you count the Malaysian that was killed there. Um, they, they lost a lot more people, not as many as Ilhan Omar has said, probably, mm. but they lost a, a, a lot of folks, but it went then from, we weren't going to go to, okay, now the whole squadron can go. Mm. And then we had a, a Ranger company that went with us. Uh, of course, the 160th was there. We had some of your folks from, from uh dev group that were there, uh, Rick Kaiser, you know, Rick Kaiser, probably, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Rick Stellar was there. Yeah. He, guy. that, that dude, you know, he was a, a, a higher ranking guy than me uh, when we were there. So he was kind of like the dad of all the seals. Cause Homer was just kind of like me, Okay, but he was in charge. At least that's what I remember. And yeah, he's a good dude, man. Oh, such a good, he runs the he's seal a, museum yeah. now. He's uh, yeah. he's running it yep. for a while. I think now he's like the COO or something like that. But he's out there. He lost his leg recently, and he like still yeah. still swimming and running and jumping and doing all yeah. those things. But uh, yeah, I can, can't say enough great things about uh, him. I'm I'm, I hope, I'm trying to convince him to write it down. I don't know if I've, yeah. I haven't been successful as of yet. But if he listens to this, um, hopefully it spurs him uh, to to write some of these things down. If only for uh, for him himself and future generations. Just uh, just put it down on some. On, he he invited me to. 
to come visit him at the, the seal museum. And, uh, when I got down there, it was on a weekend that they weren't, he wasn't there or something. And I never went, I want to, I wanted to go when he was there. Well, then he reached out to me recently and said that he was not in that same position that he had been in. So I don't, I'm going to, I'll touch base with him before I go there, but yeah, it sounds like a really cool, um, a cool thing to check out. Yeah. They do a great job with it. Uh, and same thing at, at Bragg. I remember I went there for, um, the first week of free fall cause they had the, the wind tunnel out there back in 2000. So I spent a week out there. And of course I went to the, the special forces museum, JFK special warfare center up there statue though. I mean, the whole, I mean, it, it's incredible. I just spent just time as much time as I possibly could walking around there. I think I went back a couple times during the week. Well, have you been to the airborne and special ops museum now? Is that the, is that a new version? That's- the new one downtown? I don't think so. No, I only went to the one that was on okay. base. Okay. That, that was awesome. And that was probably a little bit more focused on special forces, yeah. but the Airborne and Special Ops Museum, anybody that drives anywhere near Fayetteville, North Carolina, load up your guns nice. and head in there to the museum. It's just, <laughs> Fayetteville's kind of a rough town, but uh, <laughs> go down there and check out that museum. It's, it, is, it is just awesome. Funny so it's fun that. for me because when I walk through, I can point out pictures of people I know and, Jeez. and, and I've been in the bowels of that place. One of my buddies was working with them and he got me in the back and we oh, got nice. to see stuff that's not even available, but yeah, it's a really cool, definitely worth checking out. So. I love those. There's one in Norway too. I was uh, just kind of backpacking around back in the day and I ran into this museum that was just a military museum. It was a special operations museum and it was awesome. I can't remember exactly where it was because so much time has passed, but I really want to go back there focused on World War II, of, of course. But uh, man, it was it was cool. It was inspiring. I love going to those those little museums like that and some of the, the bigger ones now, it sounds like. But uh, we, we, had, we, we actually uh, took the family uh, nice. a month or so ago up to, uh, oh, what's the name of the airport? Dulles mm-hmm. outside of uh, DC there. And they've got that that air museum. Oh, I don't know. It's not the, no, it's not the one that's, it's not the one that's, it's not the Smithsonian Museum. Well, it might be part of that, but it's not down. It's like an annex. It's not the main one. Yeah. It's so Smithsonian. It is. It is absolutely worth checking out. It's, uh, it's really cool. I, I'm not a big motorhead or mechanic, but man, I spent the first hour just looking at the progression of the different engines that they've got. When you walk in, you walk down this ramp and it's just like, there's engine after engine and you can see the progression of what, you know, it's just amazing, especially when you think when those were actually built. Oh yeah. And then they got the, the space, the space shuttle sitting in the back and it's, uh, that's yeah, wild. Really, I'm in really third grade. My parents took me back there and, uh, they had a Corsair, the plane, my grandfather flew hanging in, uh, the Smithsonian. I distinctly remember that to, to this day, I standing there just looking up at that plane. So cool. Um, so, What's your guys' loadout then? And what are you basing your loadout oh. on when you guys land in, in Somalia, hit that airfield and start gearing up for some of your first missions? Are you, um, like, how, you personally, how many magazines are you carrying? What's your, what's your rifle? What's your, how much water are you carrying? What's your, what's your loadout for some of these? Uh, so I had a Colt 723. I just found that out. So I'm going to use my new, my new found information yeah. here. So it was a Colt 723, which is, at the time, we called a car 15. So it was a collapsible stock, um, 14 and a half inch barrel. Some were pencil barrels. Some were a little bit bigger barrels, uh, regular hand guards. There was no free float tubes on them, no trigger jobs, none of that. One thing that our, our gun plumbers had done there in the arms room, though, is they had taken our carrying handles 
and they drilled two additional holes in those carrying handles so they could attach the rail to put an aim point on and still have that center hole so that you could slide your um, your laser mounting hardware in there. So you could have this little cantilever arm that came down the side of the rifle to mount a laser. And there was, uh, some of us had aim one, some of us had, uh, I forget, it's a, called a PEC two or whatever it was called. It was a this little, it didn't have much output and it kind of flashed. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't very good. The aim one, I mean, at, the, at that point we had aim ones and, and I'm not making this up. That thing would shine like five miles. Oh, wow. So we went, we had stolen some of those from the, uh, or not stolen. Liberated. Some of yes. Those. Liberated yeah. is a good word. I think some of those off the heavy weapons and put those on our, our car 15s. We didn't have any VTAC slings cause that hadn't been designed quite yet. Then yep, like we, this. we had, I got it right here. <laughs> Right here, VTAC. Right oh, there. yeah, yep, right there. Nice. There's my uh, attachment right there for it. So, yeah, VTAC. I've been running this since like these all those different VTAC models since like 2007 or so, somewhere nice. like that. But, uh, so yeah, we had we had um plastic ProTech helmets on, we had body armor, and most of us had taken the plate at the point at that point. We didn't have rear plates anyway, but we mm -hmm. had the front plate. A lot of us had taken those out because we didn't feel like we needed them for crawling over walls and sweating. Um, I had a two quart canteen, you know, the old two quart with the fuzzy yeah. cover. I had that on the middle of my pistol belt on the back. I didn't have a pistol on my belt, but I had a, I had two quarts of water there. And then I had an emergency ration of water. And I still have that little plastic bottle that I was carrying that day. Wow. Um, I had a, uh, I say on my pistol belt, my pistol belt was a Bianchi leather belt. Um, I didn't carry a pistol for a couple reasons. One at the time we had 1911s. They weren't that reliable in the sugar cookie situation that we were in. Mm. Um, but I also carried a shotgun. So I had an 870 that had been cut off and uh, I carried that on my right side instead of carrying a pistol. I, I was one of the breachers on the team. So I had to, had to have that. Um, we had our old brick radio. I think it was a Motorola. Okay. They're about they're about a foot long. Yeah, and I had one of those. I was wearing a bonus strike vest, which bonus strike was the name of a mission that our unit did in in Panama. Mm. And those vests had been made and and used for that. It's kind of like an AK vest, but it was made for American arms. Okay. You know, so it had a radio pouch on each side, and then it had the mag pouches. I'm pretty sure I had seven magazines. And I, the reason I say that is because that's what it helps. Basic load. Well, basic load is 210 rounds and that's seven magazines. Um, I had a flashlight, an old uh, incandescent surefire mm. on my rifle because that's LEDs at least didn't exist yeah. for military style lights at the time. Um, had a little pressure pad for that. Uh, Desert boots, desert uniform. Um, yeah, that was about it. I mean, gloves, of course, we all wore, we had to wear fast rope gloves to fast rope in. And then we had flight gloves after that. Uh, I pro, I think they were like the old earth, wind, and fire goggles, the sand, wind, and dust oh, goggles. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what we had. I'm pretty sure that's what our goggles were at the time. Wow. You know, and you start thinking about this gear, not just the helmets, because we replaced the helmets. We had night vision mounts but we had left our night vision goggles 
in the rear, or I, and I didn't even have my mount. I had taken my battery box off because I'm like, I don't have the goggles. I don't need my battery box. Yeah. Um, but even our goggles, you know, they got replaced by the Bole goggles, which are superior to the mm-hmm. to those. I always like those low profile Bole goggles. Our vest got replaced with something that was lighter and better front and rear plates. Our rifles got replaced with the M4. Um, a lot of guys, you know, they want to talk bad about the M4, but I tell you, that's something that still is superior to anything I've seen. I mean, the M4 with a uh, direct gas system like that with a 14 and a half inch barrel, the only changes I would make is lower my sights, mm. which now we've done. Some guys are still trying to put them up high, but I'm not a big fan of that. They, we have lights that will last forever. The Surefire with the LED. And I, I mean, I say Surefire, but pretty much any of the, yeah. the, the new lights out there are just awesome. Um, M855A1 is, is excellent ammo. On the ground there, I carried M855. I didn't carry the federal ammo because, because of the dirt, the reliability wasn't there. So I didn't carry that. Um, I carried ball ammo, which to me seemed to work fine. Uh, our lasers have been replaced with a PEC 15, which is superior. The I said uh, free float tubes are now on the M4s, or at least the ones that the unit uses. They we we put free floating tubes, we put new triggers in them. Um, the butt stocks went from being machined aluminum to being, you know, now they're injection molded, so they're a little bit lighter. The slings, we replaced that with a VTAC sling. Nice, as uh, it should be. Yeah. Um, the pistols have been replaced a couple times. We replaced them with Glocks. And actually, I should, I, let me rephrase that. They've been replaced. Um, we replaced them with Glocks that were 40s initially, mm. and now they've been replaced with a Glock 9mm. I hope that they'll see the light and get the 320 because it's, it's definitely an easier gun to shoot than the Glock. The Glock's a great pistol, but the 320 is just very, very easy to shoot and extremely reliable. So uh, the pistols have changed. The shotgun's the same shotgun. Oh, yeah. Still the, eight, still the 870. Pump. Nothing wrong with it's, an 870. I mean, it's yeah, proven it's, itself <laughs> for a yeah. long time. Yeah, it's everybody's tried, but, man, it's still the tried and true. And the Mossberg's a cool pump shotgun, yeah. too, but the 870 is the gun that that is still carried by most of the cats that are, that are the breachers there. Um, medically, mm. We've come a oh, yeah. huge, made huge uh, investments in the milita- uh, me- the medical side, and that's the part that I'm probably most happy about, most familiar with, uh, have supported the most. When we came back, it was not very long after Somalia. They had the airborne or airborne the uh, CQB and inspe- uh, CQB an urban ops working group. Mm. And our job was to figure out what the next stuff was that we needed, whether it's training, equipment, blah, blah, blah. I was in charge of that. And that doesn't mean anything. That just means I was the guy that had to, you know, chase the half domesticated Angora cats around the building (laughs) to get them to sit down and talk about this. The thing that came out of that was not a gun. It wasn't a tactic. It wasn't a new ammo. It wasn't a piece of load bearing equipment. It was, we need more medical gear. And we invested a huge amount of money that was also matched by the civilian world out there. And that's when they started working on uh, fibrin, which is a a dehydrated clotting agent that when rehydrated, it would clot your blood. And it was like a little 
it almost looked like a piece of the dehydrated uh, peaches inside your MRE. Mm-hmm. You would break off a chunk and stick it in a bullet hole and it would help to coagulate the blood there and stop the bleeding. That's come so far, even from that very mm-hmm. first time, you know, we, we started experimenting with tourniquets. We started experimenting with uh, agents like that that would stop the bleeding. We started experimenting with ways to create airways to, uh, to the ashram and chest dressing to, you know, I mean, you know, the deal, that's the evolution that I'm super proud of because as far as I know, every soldier carries a tourniquet now. Yeah. They also kind of know how to use them. So that's another good thing. You look at the military or uh, a special operations. So you look at the unit, you look at the Rangers, we all carry our med kit in the same spot on our gear. That's another positive thing because then you go up and you treat that guy with the gear that is on the injured person. Um, Whether it's the clotting agents, which now, if you look at that evolution, now there's the combat gauze. Yeah. So you take a piece of combat gauze. It's not like a piece of Curlex where in the old days, you pull out a roll of Curlex, you had to unroll it. Yeah. And you got it all dirty when you unrolled it, you dropped it and did all this stuff. Then they started accordion folding Curlex. And then they made combat gauze. Well, guess what they did? They accordion folded that too. So when you pull it out and stuff it right into a wound, I mean, some guys would say, well, what's the big deal? That's huge. That, that accordion folding that piece of material is as important as the material, uh, uh, the, the stuff that's on that material, because the time it takes you to unroll that, that person could be dead. Yeah. If it's a femoral bleeder, like one of the guys I worked on in Somalia, um, I worked on a, a young ranger named Jamie Smith, who ended up passing away late that night. He was shot high in the femoral artery, and his his pelvic girdle was uh, shattered as well. You know, that's a guy that if we would have just not put direct pressure on that wound, he would have bled out in a, in a minute or two. We kept him alive well into the night. We called a medic over. He tried to do a cut down to 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 tie that up, but there's so many, so, so vascular inside there that you just can't do that. I mean, in bone and everything. So, um, yeah, on the medical side, I think that we've, we've learned so much, you know, back in the day we carried, there was a time we carried IVs. I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you if you had one on you in Somalia. You know, I don't, honestly, I don't remember. I probably did. Because we were still carrying them up to, t- to 2001 in training that we had that yeah. on there. And then after September 11th, ditched that and, hey, tourniquets and gauze and all that sort of a thing. But I was curious yeah. if you had an IV on you. I, I, you know what? I, I believe I did. I'm, I should know that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, we never hook, I never hooked up an IV in combat. Yeah. Um, we trained with them all the time like that, but did you have an actual tourniquet on you or did you have a homemade tourniquet or do you not have a tourniquet? on? We you? had, we had nothing. We had no tourniquets. I mean, we had, we had a pressure dressing, mm-hmm. um, trying to remember if we had a chest seal or not. We knew kind of how to do that yeah. without a chest seal anyway. Right. But we had, uh, yeah, we didn't have any tourniquets. Not that the guy, the guy I was working on, a tourniquet would not have helped at that point. But I mean, the tourniquet is one of the easiest things that you can carry to to try to stop, you know, that bleeding yeah. in any extremity there. Yeah, that that's uh yeah, that medical training, once again, to the people out there, if 
you don't have medical training, I would highly suggest that you get it. Whether you carry your gun or not, yeah. you should have medical training. Absolutely. You can, you can save your family members or just some other person out there in the street. You can save their life just with some very basic life-saving techniques. Yeah, we have tourniquets stashed all around the house, all the cars, all the backpacks, like there are tourniquets everywhere. And even up until September 11th, we still had homemade tourniquets. So we were carrying an IV. We trained doing the IV. I remember doing one in Florida uh, in Herbert Field under holding a, a light at an angle so I could have a better like uh, shadow on the vein instead of directly yeah. on it as it's doing this like in training before September 11th. But uh, but we still had homemade tourniquets, which were the bandanas that the guys wore you know, in Vietnam. And we had those and like a little stick, like a popsicle stick, essentially that yeah. twisted. Like that's yep. what the tourniquet was, I think up until September 11th, if I'm not mistaken, but yeah. And then, and the thing is that will still work. So people that are out there, if you don't have, if you, if you think you can't afford a tourniquet, you can look around your house, you can make a tourniquet. I mean, it's, you can't make combat gauze, but you can make <laughs> a tourniquet. You can make an Asherman chest seal. You can make a, a pressure bandage. You, you can do all of that. But if, do you know the, the dude at dark angel? Dark Angel Medical, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have his, yeah. I always carry his two of his kits or three of his kits I have, you know, within within a 50 yards of me right here. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a good cat. Um I would just just yeah. call him and get a kit and yeah. that's simple. It's so There's, great. I have a platform yeah. kit of his that goes in the car. I have another one that goes, it's in the garage right now. I have the uh with the IFAC version or whatever. I have that thing yeah. with a couple of other things in there. I put some uh what is that, the nitroglycerin in there for if someone having a heart attack, I stuff that in there. Unless I'm not allowed to have that, in which case then I don't for any doctors or law enforcement <laughs> that are uh, listening. Uh, so I added a couple of things there, but uh, but not not much. Um and then I have a little little tiny little small pack too. So I have a bunch of his stuff, but it's great. Yeah. Dark angel medical. Awesome. I put them in my gear guides before they're, they're fantastic. Um, but so you're, you're in there, you're in Somalia and you're doing six missions. So you've done uh, up until that uh, October 3rd, you've done six at this point. And, um, uh, what, what did you learn? Did you change anything based off, uh, that first one, second one, third one, small tweaks, large tweaks, uh, any differences in tactics or even targeting, um, at the operational level, what, 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 what changed over those first few missions, uh, before October 3rd? I, I would say we probably went a little lighter because it was really, really hot. Mm. I mean, it was really, really hot. You know, I like to say Africa hot cause it's Africa. It's hot, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I don't know that we may, I don't remember a ton of changes. We kept rehearsing and, you know, like figuring out how we were going to hit this or that. We didn't have a, a very in-depth planning process because we kind of used a cookie cutter. Here's the loadouts. This bird, I was in the lead bird, Super 6-1. That was the first bird that was shot down on the 3rd of October. I was already on the ground when it was shot down, but um, both of our pilots were killed when the bird crashed. And we would be the first, we would be the lead aircraft. And then we would have four little birds behind us and another, another Blackhawk. So Lead aircraft doesn't mean we were the first on the ground. It means that we were the lead aircraft. Mm. Mission depended on who went in first or second or whatever. Um, the little birds had more maneuverability, but we had more people. So, you know, there was kind of a, a you had to figure out what, what was yeah. more important. We hadn't, I, I don't think we had changed too awful much. I mean, we had the, we had used the, the snipers in the helicopters shooting at targets. We'd had one when we got that Osmond Auto dude. Um, 
we had snipers and they were able to overwatch and see everything going on. And they actually were trying to find one guy. So the pilot kept moving the bird until he flipped the, flipped the roof off the top of a building. And then you could just look right down in the building to wow. see if he was in there, you know? No and uh, yeah, so they, on that one, we got Osmond auto and uh, I'd say there was some lessons learned there. There'd been some shots at us before. And, and I believe some RPGs, I don't remember that specifically, but definitely yeah. there'd been a little shooting, but not, not that person that, you know, this is a bad person in front of you. Yeah. Um, on the third, there was plenty of people to shoot at, you know, and if one got shot, then his buddies would try to get the gun and pick it up and get in the fight. Uh, or they'd get behind their donkey and try to get in there. And the six-legged donkey, them. beware. I heard yeah. you should beware yeah. of a six-legged donkey somewhere. Yeah, if you ever see a six-legged donkey and you're not at the state fair, just shoot it. Just <laughs> That's shoot good it. advice. That's Write that down yeah. to anyone listening. Uh, <laughs> so but, we, we, what, I, what I would say is we were probably very confident mm. And somewhat competent, but we were very confident on the 3rd of October. Like we, by that time, we'd kind of got into it. Yeah. You know, when you go to Iraq or Afghanistan, and I've never been to Afghanistan, but when you go to Iraq, you might do four hits in a night, you know, so it's not a big deal over there. But after a while in Iraq, you get into it, you're just doing it. You're doing it. It doesn't mean you don't get a little worried or anything like that. It just means that it's, it's repetition that builds that. Mm-hmm that confidence, I guess. Um, so we went out that day and we were pretty confident. And then right off the bat, uh, we got put in at the wrong location because there's no GPS that really works back in that time. And everything looked the same. So they put us in an intersection, which was fine. We cleared a building, come out, not the right building. And then we got in a gunfight there and we and handled that for a while until we got the call, okay, move across the street over here to this the actual target building. So they'd already secured all the bad guys by the time we got there. It was just a matter of let's load them on this convoy. And that convoy was part of what, what Homer was doing. Mm. Um, and I remember looking down that road when I went out there and seeing a burning five-ton truck, and it didn't even sink in that that was one of our vehicles. But we uh, – and then Super 6-1 got shot down. And when Super 6-1 got shot down, even at that point, it, it wasn't – we weren't lackadaisical at all but we knew what the plan was. The mm -hmm. plan was to move on foot to that crash site, secure it and get, you know, treat the wounded and, and protect that from the Somalis. We knew that because we'd planned for it. We had a, a good contingency plan. Um, we had a helicopter crash at Fort Bragg when we were training and that caused us not just to sit around in the hot wash and drink beer and say, well, that was lucky. Both mm -hmm. pilots broke their backs. It started on fire. The Rangers moved there to help put out the fire. Uh, we got the pilots out, put them on backboards, and took them to Walmart, Womack Army Hospital at Fort Bragg. And we sat around that night and said, okay, what are we going to do? Or I should say the leadership sat there. We all listened. And they said, what are we going to do if we have this thing happen in Somalia? And the, the plan was, if it was urban, we would move on foot. Because we knew that Mogadishu from uh, some of the overhead imagery we had that some of our vehicles wouldn't even fit down some of those streets. Because there were so, you know, one, the, the Humvee is wide and two, the tree, streets are pretty narrow. So, yeah, that was the plan. So once that bird went down, we just knew that we we're going to move there and everything was fine kind of until we made the, the corner to go right towards the crash site. And that's when, you know, things got pretty uh, spectacular for us. Um, and we couldn't just put a bunch of fire down there because we knew we had people in that location. So we had to be selective of our targets. Uh, 
we got almost to Super 6-1. I still didn't know right where it was at. They had thrown some smoke there, but it went out by the time we got there. Uh, Earl Fillmore was shot behind me, and then this young ranger was shot in front of me. I started treating him in the street, and then we, a buddy of mine, Woody Woodall, another guy, uh, um, Lieutenant Larry Perino, who's a very good friend of mine, Woody is as well, they grabbed him and drug him out of the street there, and, and uh, we just kept treating him at that point. And then we realized that Super 6-1 was literally on the other side of the building we were in. We got hit with an RPG, Larry Perino and I, the lieutenant, we got ready to clear that building, and I said, I'm going left, you go right, don't shoot me. That's what I said. So we went in there. There's a bunch of women and children. We pushed them into a back room, barricaded them in, and they stayed there the rest of the night. And then we, at that point, we realized that that bird was right outside of our window. So we were, we were there busy all night uh, shooting at bad guys. And Woody was there and another guy, uh, a guy named Tony Copper, they had their battery boxes on their helmets. So they were able to take the night vision off the pilots and put that, put that on. And they had some of that capability there. I didn't have my battery box, so I couldn't put night vision goggles on my, on my helmet. So I did mostly calls for fire that night. They'd tell me what they saw and I can, I would, uh, they'd say sparkle on and then I'd call the call for fire. And then the little birds would come in overhead and engage the bad guys that we couldn't get to with small arms where they would come in and shoot, you know, seven, six, two and rockets right across the street from us into the bad guys. So it was pretty, uh, I don't want to say entertaining because that was not what it was, but it was a, it was a long night. Yeah. It's a little, little Western. Uh, yeah. Did, uh, so did you see uh, super six one get shot down or did you hear it on the radio? How did you know that, that, uh, that yeah, it, it was, it was circling overhead. We heard it get hit. Okay. When the RPG hit it, we looked up, heard it, or we heard it looked up. We saw it auto rotate and crash to the North of us. So we knew which way to go. Yeah. Um, the other birds that were hit, well, one of the other birds we did, I didn't see it, but I heard that one of the other birds get hit. But uh, yeah, we just, we knew, and we heard it crash because it was, you know, it was pretty close to us. It was within probably a half mile of us. Um, yeah, we knew, I mean, we knew the plan. We, they, those pilots, those two pilots that died in that crash, they saved everybody's life in the back of that bird. They did the. They did exactly what they were trained to do, and they were both extremely. One, they were good pilots, but they were extremely experienced. Um, Cliff Walcott, you know, he's one of the guys that came up with the idea to to hang thirty millimeter chain guns on a bird and call it a DAP. That's one of the guys. That's history. That's wow. I mean, that's part of our military. Yeah, Donovan Bull Briley. Donovan was. Uh, Look up DAP for anybody that's uh, that's wondering. Yeah, look it up. Uh, Donovan Briley, American Indian. That's pretty cool, man. You people, it, I, I, it just pisses me off when I hear guys saying, "Well, you know, a bunch of racists in this country," and I'm thinking back to all the freaking people that didn't look like me that I served with, and Donovan Briley, American Indian. You know, these uh, there's plenty of black dudes and yellow dudes and green dudes or whatever that I served with. And what I always tell guys is, you know, in the military, we were lucky because once somebody passed the training and they came to your team, they were your teammate. That's right. Period. Yeah. They weren't your black teammate or your Asian teammate or your Hispanic teammate or your white teammate. They were your teammate. Yeah. That's it. They're your brother. And 
Yeah. Now that doesn't mean we didn't give him crap for being a black dude from Maryland or an Asian guy from, you know, Vietnam or a, you know, Hispanic guy from Puerto Rico. Yeah. We talk all kinds of smack, but they gave me more crap for being from South Dakota than I ever gave them <laughs> crap about, you know? So it's, uh, yeah. So both those pilots, they did a spectacular job and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's sad that they, they paid the price, but I got to tell you, those guys knew exactly what they were getting into. Um, Donovan's or uh, Cliff Walcott's son, we called him the Velvet Elvis because he kind of looked like Elvis right before he OD'd. Mm. You know, he had that kind of pudgy face look. And uh, there's a picture floating around that I drew on the side of the helicopter of the Velvet Elvis. And I drew a little Elvis with a guitar. Okay. And uh, I had painted that on the side of his helicopter. And I drew a picture of Donovan Bull Briley. They called him Bull because he had unusually large nuts. Uh, for, a human, for a human being, but so I painted that on there as well. But um, well, you, you extract these guys from the Hilo, though. Like you're, you, you're. Uh, well, not not me. I did not. So when we got there, the, the guys that were in the helicopter when it crashed extracted those that were injured. They could not get Cliff's body out of the helicopter. So the reason, you know, well, why didn't you just leave? Well, we couldn't leave. We can't leave a fallen comrade there to be his body desecrated by the Somalis, which they would have. They would have hacked him up. They would have done whatever. We saw what happened with other guys that were that happened too. Um, they couldn't get Cliff's body out of the helicopter, so we had to wait till that evening to get uh, Matt Ryerson came in with some of the right tools, quickie saws and things like that to help cut his body out of that helicopter. Matt didn't get killed till a couple of days later when we got mortared in a mortar round hit pretty much where he was standing. What I was going to say earlier, though, Cliff Walcott's son became a Blackhawk pilot. Okay. Jeez. Yep. That's, uh, yeah. And his, he had other, uh, a brother, I believe, that was also in 160th. I don't believe he was a pilot. I think he was an NCO. I'm pretty sure of that. But his son ended up becoming a pilot. I went to his graduation from flight school. He hadn't had no clue who I was because he'd been just a little kid when, yeah. when his dad had passed away. And, and uh, I got to meet him and his, his, I'd met his mom before, but you know, I don't have any tight affiliation with him or anything. But that says a lot about a little dude that oh. his dad was his hero. It wasn't some football player, baseball player, or cop or anything. It was his dad he wanted to grow up and be just like his dad. And that's really awesome. You know, Incredible. So, so many amazing stories like that. And people like that. that, those are the things that give me, give me hope. Um, but you guys are, when do you realize that you're going to be out there all night and you're essentially alone? So now you've been separated from the, the main element and you guys are, are out there essentially by yourselves. Um, what are you thinking throughout that, that night? Do you think you're going to get overrun or are you confident that you have enough ammo between you guys that you can hold these, these people off and tell? Well, initially, arrive, or what is it? What is that like? Initially, I thought we were going to be overrun. Yeah. Um, I did think we were going to run out of ammo too, but we had a, a, an officer named Bill Coltrip that jumped out of a window, guns shooting from both directions at him, slid underneath this crashed helicopter and grabbed ammunition from Dan, uh, Dan Bush, who had also, he got shot by that helicopter on the ground. He ended up dying on the way. Well, he probably was dead there, but he got loaded on a little bird and got exfilled, ended up passing away, but took his, uh, his saw ammo carriers 
and toss that to us. And then we de-link that saw ammo and loaded our mags with that. And I didn't, I, honestly, I didn't, I didn't need a bunch of ammo because I didn't shoot as much as some of the guys, it, depending on where you were at, you know, we, we shot some from where we were at, but not as, as heavy as other guys. Uh, you know, and it's kind of funny because you talk to some guys and it's like this craziest firefight they've ever been in. And for me, it was, cause I'd never been in a firefight, but my perspective is only what I can see. And it wasn't as when I listened to some of these other guys, I'm like, well, dang, I'm glad I wasn't over there. But then again, we were all kind of in the same situation. We had plenty of targets to shoot at, but just, you know, we weren't you're shooting full auto or anything, you know, single shots, um, calling little bird hits as we went. But we, so we started to get low on ammo there, de-linked that. And then we had a, another bird that flew in and, and kicked out ammo to us. So then we had more, more ammo. Um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I was, I was kind of worried, man. I was, I was kind of worried that that was going to be it. And I wasn't so worried about dying because that's kind of what we had, you know, that's kind of what you think, okay, that's going to happen. But I just didn't want to die as a coward there, you know, do your job until the very end. What is that? And I think that there's something that kind of clicks in you when you're in a situation like that, where you got to take care of your buddies around you. Um, to me, it's not heroism because I didn't do anything heroic, but what I would say is the guys that were on my left and their right, they were doing what human nature tells you to do, which is to take care of your tribe. And we talked about that earlier, the tribe, but that's really what, um, I think that's what it's about. I mean, I, being scared, if you're not scared, you're kind of an idiot. <laughs> um, and when I say scared, scared isn't, scared isn't like so debilitating that you can't do your job. Scared is just being aware that there are things zipping through the air that can kill you. We got a guy here bleeding to death at our feet. My buddy is dead behind me. Um, and I, I, of course, we were separated from him. It took a radio call for me to find out that Earl Fillmore was dead. When John Hale come on the radio and, and they asked him, who's the KIA? And he said, Alpha 2. I was like, holy cow, that's Earl. And then, then it sunk in like, this is real, man. This is, you know, we're six foot tall or 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Well, we're not. We're just like every other human being on the planet. Um, so, yeah, it was... Yeah, it was nerve wracking. It, it was uh, one of our guys, Tony there, he left to go try to find us some more water. I passed around my two court and then it was gone. Wow. He went to try to find us some water and he got hit by an RPG and he ends up with his neck, a neck, like a neck brace on and bandaged up and he's running down the road with his neck brace on. And I mean, it was, that's kind of comical now, but it wasn't real comical. Not then. Yeah. At that point, you know, and then Malaysian APCs came in to try to help us and 10th mountain, they came in as well. Um, I really admire those guys because the Rangers and our unit guys, of course they're coming because they're part of our unit, but Malaysians, and I'll go back to that. They're part of our tribe and those guys are not Christians. They're Muslim dudes. They're there to try to save our lives. The 10th mountain guys, same things. They don't, you know, maybe they knew somebody in our in our outfit, but they were coming out into a sandwich that's not even made of peanut butter. And, and they're, 
they're doing it because they're part of our tribe. They're the guy on your left and your right. That's going to try to save your life. And they, they know they're going to get shot at, you know? So, uh, and then of course the Rangers did a spectacular job too. They, yeah, everything went as, as well as it could have went for kind of those circumstances. And TF-160 is just flying all night and they're going back and, and refitting with more ammo and coming back. And how are your rate? Are you talking to them on the, the Motorola's or do you have a big green radio with you? Or what do you No, We're, I'm calling them on the Motorola. How yep. do you, did you look at like a battery and you're like, how long is this thing going to last? Or did you, did, did you know that you, did you have an extra with you? Cause I think those were the, re, were those the rechargeable no. ones that you just kind of clipped in at the bottom on the Motorola's yeah. back then? So what we did eventually, um, and at that point I didn't have one cause I wasn't in a leadership position, but later on we had a setup that you could hook a 5590 yep. to a battery adapter that would go on. And we would do that. We did that. Oh, back then. I, I'm not sure if we did it then. I didn't have one because I was just a, yeah. I was a nug. You know, you talked about being the low man on the team. I was doing a seminar one time. I didn't realize it, but there was a, a Native American in the crowd. And I said, yeah, I was the low man on the totem pole. And mm. she raised her hand and she goes, no, you weren't. And I'm like, no, actually I was. And she goes, no, the low man on the totem pole is the most respected. Interesting. She goes, you were the high man on the totem pole because you are the junior person. Oh, wow. And I'm like, huh. I did not know that. So anyway, because I, I, I used to always say that during my leadership seminars yeah. and, and uh, this lady, she corrected me. She, she did it very nicely, obviously, but and I'm like, Roger that I will not forget that, you know? Interesting. So I learned a little bit about uh, somebody else's culture there yeah. by you know, teaching a seminar, but no, we, uh, yeah, the 160. They shot all night. They they uh, they kept refitting. They go back and they would, you know, grab a grab a power bar or whatever and a, some more water, and they would just fly. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I believe if they had to go to the bathroom, they just went in the bird. Yeah. And uh, the 160 has saved our bacon. They were they're incredible. You've worked with them. There's no pilots as good as those pilots. And the people out there, if you want to get pissed off, go ahead and get pissed <laughs> off. I'm just going to tell you, there are no rotary wing pilots in the world, and as far as we know, the universe that can fly as good as <laughs> the 160th right. pilots. They're unbelievable. Unbelievable. And you know, you mentioned Bill Coltrip. Interesting. Some a buddy of mine was with him last night and texted me. He said, "Hey, I'm here with Bill Coltrip because we know each other from uh, the Philippines when he was uh, yeah, doing some yeah. things in the Southern Island chain there." Um, so interesting, crazy that last night, you know, someone uh, we stayed in touch for a while. I haven't talked to him in a few years now, but uh, uh, you know, yeah. do you know, do you know his story about becoming the the commander of Sea Squadron? No, no. I mean, what he did at, at some point during that time frame, but I don't know the like why he a story around was, that. Well, he, that's awesome. There's a guy that, that, that is like a captain on the ground in Somalia and he ends up being the commander of sea squadron. And, uh, he was the commander when we got Saddam Hussein. Yeah. That's the story I was going to say. I didn't know. <laughs> I think he's, that's awesome. Yeah. Amazing. That's an awesome story. I don't care yeah. if he talks about it or not. I'm going to talk about it because that's awesome. <laughs> he's a great guy. You know? He was yeah, always fantastic awesome, to me. Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, I, I, yeah, I ran into him there. Oh, he's just, yeah. I love that guy. Yeah. That, that guy, uh, you know, and it's funny because he's a, he's, he's different than a lot of the other commanders. Mm. He's just, he's, he, which is good. I mean, everybody's a little different, but he's different than most of those commanders. He is, 
he absolutely is focused on the men oh, yeah. and the mission. Yep. And that's it. That's yep. the, that's his focus. There's nothing. I never once saw anything in him where he was trying to check a block and move on. Mm-hmm. He was doing the job to the best of his capability at that time. Yep. That's my experience uh, working for him as well. I mean, he, he, he took care of me and yeah, every time he'd come through Coronado in the years after he texts me and, and, uh, and we'd, uh, we try to link we, up and, but, uh, yeah, hopefully I can run into him here, uh, at some point soon. It'd be nice to, to catch up with him, but, uh, you're talking uh, about leadership also, you're talking about, uh, uh, there was some point somewhere along the line there where an element gets removed from the battlefield. And I think some Lieutenant Colonel orders it. Um, and my question was what, why was that Lieutenant Colonel even on the battlefield running around or did he make that call from the airfield um, no no yeah how did that work you talked through that decision like from a senior leadership perspective did they just not have a good picture of what was going on or uh what was that uh was that about so there was a uh lieutenant named larry moores who had been a an nco and then he had half his brain removed so he could become an officer <laughs> And uh, no, I'm just obviously Larry. If you're listening to this, I'm joking. But super, super, <laughs> it's not super, uncommon. yeah, super respected dude in the Rangers because going from being an NCO to becoming an officer, he, he's he's got a huge leg up. If he's a good dude, you know the guys are going to respect him. That particular day, and, I, and this is my story. So if I'm wrong, somebody can correct me. But him and some of the ends, him and some of his guys were on the other side of the airfield getting water for our task force. So their job that day was, hey, drive over there to the desalination plant and get a water buffalo full of fresh water to bring back. So he drives over there. And while he's driving over there, this mission gets spun up and we got to go. And, and once again, this is not a hit on him. He's doing what he's got to do. So he was the, the, the TC or the commander of that lead vehicle. So he's not there. He knew the mission. He knew the contingencies. He is switched on. He's a good cat. The lieutenant colonel that jumped in there, I don't know what he knew, but I kind of know what he didn't know. And one was probably didn't know the contingencies that if we have a bird crash, we're going to move on foot to that crash site and do our thing. So there's an NCO on the ground, and his name is Matt Eversman, another stellar ranger, good friend of mine, great dude. Um, and in the movie, they made it Matt Eversman kind of one of the central figures, and he was doing all this stuff. In, in what happened in reality was he's there, bird gets shot down, and I don't know what, what they had going on at this time, but that convoy pulls up, and that lieutenant colonel says, load your guys on the vehicle. Well, Matt knows the mission. He knows the contingency, and he's like, no, sir, we got to move on foot to the crash site. The lieutenant colonel says, I said, get on the vehicle. And he's like, sir, and he goes, get on the vehicle. So he loads half the platoon on those vehicles. And now they went through the meat grinder to get out of there, but they left the battlefield never to return again. So imagine if you're that platoon leader, which is a guy named Di Damaso, imagine that you're him and you show up at that crash site and you're missing half your guys. I don't care what the numbers are. If it's one or if it's two and you're missing one, that's, that's bad. If you're, if it's 30 and you're missing 15, that's just as bad, you know? Um, yeah, that's, uh, 
to me, that's a devastating screw up there because we could have used those guys on the ground. Um, so this book I showed you earlier. Yeah. I normally don't listen to Navy guys. (laughs) Wise, very wise. (laughs) But one of the things, one of the things that Admiral Stockdale said was contingencies. We have to have a plan to fail in the military. He said, we train for failure. And I'm going to tell you, when I read that, I was like, you're an idiot. You know what though? He's 100% right. Mm -hmm. Because what is a contingency? Contingency is an unplanned failure, right? It's, you don't, you don't plan and say, okay, we're going to fail. We're going to get hit here by this IED. Hey, yeah, we're oh, we're going to drive hound here. Then we're going to hit this IED, and then it's going to be total mayhem, and then whatever. You say, here's the mission. We're taking this route in. We're going to take this route out. Here's our contingencies. Medic, what do you got? Okay, here's how we're going to do it. You know, I'm going to be the triage guy, blah, blah, blah. You go through that so that you're not affected by the fact that the medic's not doing the work. He's doing the thinking, and he's having you do the work. Okay, that's part of the contingency is that the medic is going to be in charge of triage, right? I'm going to be a medic all of a sudden because I've got gear for that. Um, hey, if we get hit here, what's the minimum force requirement to get on this objective? Hey, if we have a bird shot down, we're going to move on foot because we can't move vehicles there. If this happens, here's what's going to, you know, that's what contingencies are. And Admiral Stockdale is absolutely correct when he says we're planning for failure. And if we plan for failure, we're going to succeed. Because if we if we have a bird get shot down, there's no talking because the team leader says, okay, order, or the troops arm major says, order a movement. Alpha Bravo Charlie, let's move. Boom, that's it. We know where we're going. We just saw the bird crash. We're going to move to that crash site, secure the crash site, and, and stand by for further direction as we're treating wounded and fighting off bad guys or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, not knowing that, you know, when we talk about the, um, you know, the back brief, I always, I, I do several different classes where I travel the country and I teach leadership. I teach some, um, I teach some classes for executives, the warrior executive to, to try to get them to think a little bit more like a military, uh, a military person. I teach tactics classes, team leading classes, things like that. Well, when we do that back brief, who is the back brief for? It's for everybody that's going on the battlefield. So when you back brief, it's good. You got to have the commander there because the commander is going to be sitting there on the radio making calls and they have to know what your plan is so that they let you be successful because ultimately what we want on the battlefield is we want to have efficiency and efficiency isn't somebody micromanaging every move that you're doing. It's giving leadership the responsibility to do what they need to do on the ground. And that's what you did when you were on the ground. You had guys that knew what the mission was. And your commander in the back knew what your mission was, and they let you do, they facilitated you by letting you do your job. Now we got a guy there that's saying, no, load on the vehicle. That's not the plan, man. That's yeah. definitely not the plan. And because of his rank, if that would have been another E6, I'm going to tell you right now, horseman would have a vehicle. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was 06 or 05, I guess 05, he would have been. Yeah. yeah. So whatever. I mean, I, I shouldn't say whatever, but. You know, we learned, and there's more to that story that I don't want to get into, but um, selection is for a reason. 
If you send guys to, to rip or rope and they fail, it should be the same for everybody. Worldwide assignment needs of the army. When you change those rules for one person because of a caste system, because of who they know or who they've blown or whatever, what their name is, it's wrong. In the United States military, it's got to be, we are all 100% equal, period. That's it. You prove yourself. You prove yourself, you're on the team. You don't prove yourself, you're not on the team. So now you've set a guy up for failure because he doesn't successfully complete uh, rope and uh, see what happens. Yeah, and it erodes trust even before something like this happens. You always know that that guy did not make it through, or you know, it just erodes trust to the entire. Makes the whole unit not as strong. Uh, And then somebody else got like a minor. Is there another officer that got like a minor wound or something like that and stepped down? And then Ryerson steps up and uh, and uh, and takes charge. Something like that happened as well. That's the same guy. Oh, it's the same thing. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know it's. I'll tell you, man, um, Matt Ryerson, when he came back off that mission, Matt was fit to be tied. And Matt was a very squared away tactician, hardcore, good shape, best shooter, physically fit. He's a, he was the ultimate operator. And you other guys out there that think you're the ultimate operator, this guy would crush you like a ripe August tomato. The <laughs> dude was amazing. And he was mad. And, and I, I'm going to tell you, if he wouldn't have been killed in that mortar attack, he'd be out there, you know, saying the th- same things I'm saying. He probably would have said it a lot hard, more hardcore because he, he, was, he was a rough character. Just a great, great guy. Um, yeah, it, it's... You know, the, the, the problem, Jack, is that if you have situations like that happen and you don't learn from them, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you right now, we went to, you know, like when you're skydiving, you go to school on the guy in front of you and you don't repeat the mistakes that the guy in the stack in front of you makes. You watch what he does. And that's exactly what we did. We looked at what we did right and what looked at, more importantly, what we did wrong. And we learned our lessons from that. We passed that on. We weren't embarrassed to tell people that we didn't have our nods, that we didn't have the right medical gear, which it didn't exist at the time. We should have had our night vision. We should have had more water. We should have had blah, blah, blah. We told everybody. We waved it from the highest mountaintop. And guess what? That made our unit better. It made the Army better. It made the Navy better, Air Force, Marines, everybody. I'm supposed to throw Coast Guard in there too. My buddy Brian Williams always wants me to mention the, the Coast Guard. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I mean, we did. It made everyone stronger as a whole going forward, and we're therefore more prepared for what happened after September 11th, 2001. Um, in the morning, then, Mogadishu Mile, everybody's heard of it. Um, you ran it. What was that like? It didn't seem like a mile. I don't know how long it was. I've never really checked the map to see what it what the real distance was, but when you're getting shot at, it gives you a, 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 a renewed sense of motivation. Get faster. Um, yeah. We had a guy, um, Glenn Ivory was a brand new medic. And I don't know that he'd even been to OTC at that time, but he was out there with us. And this guy is just an awesome dude. He's a super hockey player, 
good dude. And I had met him when he first came on board there. And he was part of that Mogadishu mile. We're running out of there. Well, he ends up, I turned from a corner and just turned to run across the street as he replaces me. You were just basically doing a scroll to the road. Mm. You know, it, it wasn't a scroll to the road, but we're, we're, we're continuing to pull flank security as we move down there. I guess the, we would call it now, uh, um, um, rolling thunder. Okay. R- rolling thunder would be kind of the term terminology that we use. Anyway, he comes in there, he bumps me out. I take off and I get about halfway across this alleyway, alleyway and all of a sudden, and I feel the heat. And if you've been close to an explosion, the heat is interesting. <laughs> and I felt the heat and the blast. And I turned and I looked and he was totally disappeared inside this dust cloud. And I, and I turned right around and ran back to him. Cause I was like, we got to, we got to get his body and put it on it. Honestly, I thought he was dead because that, that RPG round hit right where he was at. I almost run into him because he's <laughs> running out of this cloud of dust. And I'm like, are you all right? And he's like, I'm fine. And he's hollering. I don't realize that he's, his eardrums are jacked up. He's bleeding out of the side of his head. Oh my gosh. And he's running a little corner ways like he's been drinking or something, but he's, he's not going to stop. He, he stayed in the fight, even though he's got blood running down the side of his face, a side of his head. Um, he had fragmentation on, inside of his inner ear as well. That's what was screwing up his balance. Wow. So here's the cool story about that guy. He ends up coming back from that, getting patched up. I'm pretty sure he hadn't been to OTC yet. So he goes to OTC as a medic. So he's a direct support medic who are to me, my favorite people in the whole unit, because they're the dudes that are going to save your life. And they know how to shoot. They know how to do everything else, but their goal is to save your life. He does that. He becomes a unit medic, and then he decides he's going to be an operator. So then he goes to selection and successfully completes that. And he ends up coming back and going to the B squadron. Wow. And he is, uh, he, this guy is, he's, he's amazing. Absolutely an amazing dude. He's not the only guy that's done that. Yeah. Um, we have another guy named Dan Briggs who won the Distinguished Service Cross in Fallujah. He carried Marines all day that were getting wounded and did all this crazy stuff. He ended up, same thing, becomes a, was a unit medic and then becomes an operator. And then he ended up getting blown up by a, uh, a body bomber and got a little nick on his leg, didn't go to, to seek medical aid. He's like, I'm good. Let's take care of the guys that are really jacked up. Well, he ends up getting infected because of what they put on the, the fragmentation or what they shot the bad guy up with before he blew himself up. And he ends up having all kinds of trouble with getting infections in his arms. And oh, they split his man. arms open and did all this stuff. But yeah. um, now he's doing some uh, other stuff in the world that's classified. Mm. Got so it. So he's, he's still uh, serving. Jeez. I mean, such an amazing amazing people yeah. you serve with you included obviously and two of the others um and you won't find out till you get back to the airfield what happened to them to randy shugart and gary gordon yeah. um you get to the airfield and you you find you find out that they're missing or do you know that that they have paid the ultimate price when you're like when, when do you find out their their status so we 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 ended up linking up with the uh, 10th mountain after we did the mogadishu mile part we get there there's a young uh soldier that they're treating that 
is uh, wounded in the chest. Um, and I apologize. I don't know his name. He wasn't from our unit, but he's one of the guys that ended up passing away a couple of days later. Um, this young kid has been shot. They're working on him. End up, you know, we had to kind of wait till he was uh, stabilized enough to load him on a vehicle. We get in these vehicles and we drive back to the airfield. Some guys went to the Pakistani stadium. We went right back to the airfield. We get to the airfield, we drive in, and uh, I was like, I, I'm done with this. I never want to be in another gunfight in my life. I mean, I was just like, I'm ready to tap out, you know? And John Hale, the team leader, he's, he's there, and he's like, all right, guys, I got a call on the command freak. We, uh, we're missing a couple guys. I don't believe we knew who we were missing at that point, but he says, all right, load up your, get your stuff topped off. We're going to have to go out for these guys. So he took a guy like me who was, I was done. And this is, you know, I'm not saying, Hey, I'm done. I'm not going out. I'm just sitting there thinking who this sucks, you know? And, uh, man, we loaded our mags and he put us back in the fight. Like you got to get ready to go. And then eventually we got the call that we weren't going to go back out. So then we drove back to the, um, we drove back to our hangar. And we went in there and we were going to get our stuff fixed. We went in there and put our radios in the charger, uh, started clean, kind of cleaning up a little bit. Um, I was pretty bloody from working on um, Jamie Smith. I was pretty much blood from my, my chest all the way down to my toes because, you know, we had to put our hands into his chest or into his, into his wound and then put pressure with our chest to keep that direct pressure because your hands would get tired from trying to hold that. Um, so we walk in there and what was kind of crazy was the, we built this little TV room out of these, these windows. There were doors or windows that we screwed them all together. And CNN was showing us video of our buddies getting drugged through the streets of Mogadishu at that time. So we got to watch that. And at that point, I was definitely ready to go back out at that point. Everybody was ready to go out and seek some retribution. and. That's not right either. You know, we don't think clearly when you're upset like that. Um, that's where those, those key leaders have to step up and manage, manage that hatred. Because if somebody needs to be killed, then, then we're your guys. But we're also there to save people. And we're not there to kill the wrong people. So we had kind of been exposed to that on the way out when we drove out we're driving along and there's people shooting at us. And then all of a sudden people are standing there waving at us and you have to go from getting ready to shoot to women and children standing there and dudes. And maybe some are bad. I don't know, but if they're not shooting at you, you just can't go out and murder people. That's uh, we leave that for the psychopaths. Um, can, can I bring Can I, can I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is kind of, this isn't completely on topic, but the other day, um, I was getting ready, putting together a presentation. And one of the things that came up was this, the sheepdog versus the wolf. Mm -hmm. You've heard that. Mm -hmm. And it kind of bothers me. So I, I sent a text out to a bunch of my friends. I said, are you a sheepdog? Are you a wolf? And right here in front of everybody in the world, you got to give me your choice. So I've changed over time with this one because I, when I first heard this analogy as well, 
I thought about it and I thought about, okay, uh, I, I, I read the person that, you know, came up with it ish, you know, it's probably been around a little bit. Um, but I thought, no, wolf, I, I've, I've had this, this connection to wolf since I was a little kid. So I didn't put too much thought into it other, other than, Hey, I'm a hunter and that's what I do. Like that was, that was it. And then I'm like, wolf. And this was, let's say 2002 or something like that, maybe even before that. Um, and the guy that I, that had asked me this question, uh, or that I was discussing this with, was the Vietnam Project Delta guy, um, uh, and and so he said, "Well, think about that a little through that a little more." Um, so if the the wolf is the enemy, and you are that wolf, then or you're identifying with that, then you'll eventually become that enemy. So maybe that's putting a little too much thought into it. I don't know. I just went immediately to the, I am a hunter. That is what I do. I go out there and this is my calling. I'm a wolf. But then I understand the sheepdog analogy, the protector standing at the gate of the, as the sheepdog type of thing. So I think, yeah. you know, there are, there are different ways to think about it without one, you know, depending on how much thought you're putting into it and what perspective you're, you're bringing to it, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, it was very interesting because almost every law enforcement guy that I said this to, they said that they are a sheepdog and almost every military dude said they're a wolf. And when I thought about it, it started to bother me because I was thinking, am I a bad person? Cause I really identify with the wolf versus the sheepdog. And then I talked to one of my buddies and he goes, cops are different than we are, which I don't want to believe, but it really is true. Our missions are different. Law enforcement guys are there to protect those that they're sent to protect. Military people are not. Military people have a mission and they are sent to conduct that mission. And the mission is not to be a sheepdog. The mission is to go out and capture or kill. No matter who you are in the military, it's either a capture or kill mission. If you're out handing out MREs to people that don't have food, okay, that's, that's a different thing. That's a, a humanitarian mission, but a military mission is to capture or kill bad guys. And then I started going literally like into the analogy, a wolf or a sheepdog. Wolves take care of their pack. Mm. Sheepdogs could care less about their pack. They are hired by the owner to do a job, which is to protect the innocent. Wolves feed themselves. Sheepdogs wait till their master gives them food. Oh, you put more thought into this. You've taken this to the next level now. Dude, I, do, I've got I like a, it though. I like I got it. A no, I've got my notebook here somewhere and it is full <laughs> of all these analogies. Uh, the baddest dog on the planet has the biting pressure of like 700 pounds. Mm. The wolf is like 1500 pounds of biting pressure. So they say. Um, wolves will do anything for their pack to feed their pack. Now, one of the bad things is maybe wolves kill for entertainment sometimes. Um, and I would say that if I'm a wolf and I'm fighting other wolves, there's probably some wolves out there that I'm fighting that are that person that kills for entertainment, like a terrorist or whatever. So I have changed my, I, I am proud to tell you that I want to remain a wolf because I'm, I want to go and search out and destroy the enemy. I don't want to stand, stand there waiting to be attacked. I want to go capture or kill the bad guys where they sleep. That's exactly what I said so, back in 2002, or maybe it was even before 2000, 
one, 2002, maybe it was 2000, but it was somewhere around that time frame anyway, where people started to talk about that analogy more. Um, and that's what I, that's exactly what I said. So I'm glad we're on the same page. Whew. Man, yeah, well, so I wouldn't when, want to uh, fail your test right there. That would have been a horrible for me. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't sleep you started, tonight. Yeah, you started to go down a road and I'm like, this bro is getting old and soft. I don't know what's yeah. up. <laughs> but we brought you back to the, yeah, so the um, On Killing and, and those yeah. books are, um, they're great books. Everybody should read them. But when you read it, make sure that you don't read it and take it absolutely to heart. You need to find in your heart what you feel as a warrior, because Dave Grossman has one opinion and I have another. Mm. We're both right because that's his opinion and I have mine. And if you're a law enforcement officer, please don't be offended. I'm not saying anything bad about you. You do, you do what you're supposed to do in your position. Yeah. Which I'm probably isn't hunting and killing um, in the yeah, law enforcement yeah. profession, or you're probably not going to be around too much longer. Um, so, whereas that is our profession in, in special operations. It's hunting and killing like that is the base, right? That's the foundation. But uh, and I'm glad we're on the same page there. Oh, you made my day. Oh, it put me on the spot too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but uh, speaking of, of uh, uh, Randy Shugart and Gary Gordon, those guys, can you, um, can you run through what they, what they did that day? They were, they received the Medal of Honor posthumously. Uh, most people know that, but uh, you know, the decision that they made, uh, may probably knowing the odds, um, yeah, and they, and and I want to highlight what you just said. The decision they made, they were not told that they had to go into that crash site. They made that decision, and I'm going to tell you right now. I knew both of those guys. Randy was a friend of mine. Gary was a superior. <laughs> Gary was a little rougher uh, to me because he was a more senior guy. Great guy, but he wasn't going to like hang out with the <laughs> dude at the top of the totem pole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, if they were sitting here today, they'd make the same decision. And I'm going to use what you just said. They were wolves. They went in there to protect those guys. And I'll tell you right now, Michael Durant, who is also a friend of mine, um, who's also running for Senate, I believe. Yeah, something. I, I saw yeah, that. That's, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, they went in there and they fought at that crash site and they, they paid the, the price. Everybody was killed except for Michael Durant. He was taken hostage and then a few weeks later, um, they released him. I, I do wanna say a couple things about Michael Durant too. When a guy goes through something like that, and I, I didn't know him, he was another pilot. I'll just leave it at that. What I will say is this, it's hard to find somebody in a military unit that 100% of the people will say positive things about. And I'm going to tell you this, Michael Durant is that person. Every single pilot, every single member of the 160th that I've talked to has spoke highly of Michael Durant. So, and I'm not here to promote him for getting, I'm not saying it because of that. I'm saying as a, as a human being and as a, a pilot, um, extremely well-respected by his mates. That is not always the case. Because I'm going to tell you right now, if you go out there and start asking people about Kyle Lamb, there's going to be somebody that's going to throw me under the bus. I'm sure <laughs> there's got to be at least one guy, right? I can't imagine but, who that would be. But, but with him, not one single and, – and the 160th guys, they don't hold back. They're a yeah. bunch of old grumpy warrant officers. 
they'll talk trash about their mom, but they, <laughs> they absolutely all have spoke highly about him. But yeah. So Randy Shugart was, I, I like to call him Casca and I, and I'm not sure if that was his call sign or not, but you ever, you remember the book Casca? Oh, I do. I sure do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if, for those of you that don't know who Casca was, he was a Roman soldier that was there when Jesus was crucified. This is totally made up, but for the book's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of what happened, Jesus said, you will walk the earth for eternity as you are. So he was a soldier for eternity, whatever that it was Vietnam, it was working mm-hmm. in the mines, doing all this different stuff. The thing that's interesting about that book is it was, was written by, um, I forget. It's been a long time. The guy that sang the, uh, Oh, Barry that, Sadler, uh, Barry Sadler. Oh, wow. Barry Sadler is the original author of that book. And somebody else took over later on when Barry Sadler committed suicide. But anyway, Randy was like that guy. Randy was a guy that when he showed up for sniper training, he was wearing a cowboy hat. And I'm not making that up. That's there's a picture of him too. If you search the internet, you'll see a picture of him with a cowboy hat on. That's how Randy was. <clears throat> Kid from uh, Pennsylvania, just a great. He's a great guy. He's buried in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, right up there. If you ever go up to um, yeah, Gettysburg, mm-hmm. yeah, just drive about. 30 miles north of there and, and go visit his gravesite. It's a special place. I've been there a few times to, to, to visit Randy and it's a pretty special, you know? Yeah. Um, Gary Gordon, uh, I'll tell a quick war story about Gary. I was riding overseas somewhere. I think we were going to Jordan to do uh, training in the desert. And we had these vehicles called Pensgowers. They're six wheeled vehicles. And, I was not a man of rank. So my job was to sleep on the floor underneath the vehicle. And I had taken my air mattress and blown it up and had that underneath there. I was pretty comfortable, but man, it was getting hot. So I had thrown back my, my poncho liner and I was in my, my little uh, Ranger panties and a t-shirt <laughs> and I'm just crashed out there. You know, we would take whatever pill they gave us to sleep. We're flying over there and I get, I don't know, we're probably six hours into this flight and I wake up and I'm like, man, I am sweating. I mean, I am sweating so bad that my legs are like slathered in sweat. And then I realized that what that was, was Gary Gordon always had a spit bottle that was a Gatorade, uh, not a plastic bottle, but a glass bottle. We didn't have plastic bottles then. And he had been spitting in that and he fell asleep in the front seat of the Pensgower. He tipped over his spit bottle and I had Gary Gordon tobacco spit from my waist down. I was just slathered in this stuff. So, yeah. So I smelled like Gary Gordon spit (laughs) for about two weeks out in the desert there, but, uh, (laughs) less than ideal. (laughs) Yeah. They, they paid the price. It's a, 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 I mean, it's a, it's a sad deal, but they, they both received the medal of honor and, uh, yeah, they're definitely, well thought of in our neck of the woods. Yeah. Oh, incredible. Um, and then when you guys got back from that, what, what changed when you got back to, uh, to the United States, um, you land something like this has not happened in quite some time. We haven't been in sustained combat since Vietnam. Of course, there's been flashpoints like desert one, Grenada, Panama, uh, uh, desert storm, and now Mogadishu. Um, what changes for you when you guys, when you guys hit the ground, is there a, debrief personally and professionally 
I guess, for you? Are you asking some questions or are you all in or are you, um, and as a unit, are you guys pass? I mean, you did pass on the lessons, but it was, was it something that happened right away or did it take some time? What was it like when you returned? I would say that most of us were all in. Now there were some guys that got out of the military after that. And I, that's up to them. I don't know that it was because of Mogadishu, but some guys got out and did their thing and were successful. Some guys had to get out because they were medically retired because they were jacked up, you know, um, we immediately went to work trying to make ourselves better. And by ourselves, I would just say in our squadron. And then the other squadron started saying, okay, what about this? What about that? And, and they were very open to hear what that was. I would say this. Some people started to, that started to become their personality, like they're the Somalia guy. And that's one of the things I, it bothers me a little bit because like when I go out and talk to people, well, they want to hear about Somalia. And there's been so many other things that I've done in my life that, you know, is that a defining moment? I, I don't know that it's a defining moment, but it definitely uh, got my azimuth on track mm. for the rest of my military or most of my rest of my military uh, time. We, we, there's probably some demons that we had to battle with as well. Because when you go through something like that, there's cert- it, it's, it's going to change you. And one thing you got to remember to all you young guys and gals out there, when you come back from this, just remember that your family is the same family you left. The thing that's different is not your family. The thing that's different is you. So don't get mad at your family because they're the same family that loved you when you left. Mm. You're the one that's different. So you need to get your head screwed on straight. Um, if you need help, you know, go talk to other veterans and get that help that you need, but don't, you know, don't come back and treat your family different because you got shot at a whole bunch of people have been shot at and, and we can go on to have successful lives, successful careers. But, um, yeah, I think that the lessons learned immediately, I was employing different ways to shoot my rifle just from what I learned from being in, in a fight there. Uh, and when I went on to be a, a shooting instructor for the unit, which was many years later, man, I was teaching these guys how to shoot strong side, support side. The VTAC barricade is something I stole from Benny Cooley, who's a very good friend of mine, and changed it to make it more difficult. And now, the other day, I, there was a picture that somebody sent me that they're using VTAC barricades in the Ukraine, training oh, wow. their people. Yeah, okay. which I've seen them around the world, but to see a picture of them in the Ukraine, that's like, all right, good. Keep training, boys, because, man. I need it. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, I think it's, we, we kind of hit the ground running to change the way that we did business. Our loadout became different. We carried more ammunition. We had double plates. We never left our nods behind a lot of things that lessons learned that we then passed on. A lot of our guys left to go work for AWG to train Mm -hmm. around the military. So I would say that we, I think we did pretty well because I think that nothing was hidden mm-hmm. from other people in the military. There was no secrets. Yeah. We told everybody everything because we wanted to be better and we didn't want another American life to be lost because they didn't know what mistakes we had made. Yeah. You know, and I, and I wonder, is it a mistake if you don't know any better? You know what I'm That's saying? Like certainly a lesson. Yeah. yeah, it's a lesson. 
So we learned our lessons and we passed that along. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think I'm it went a, pretty well. I'm a direct, yeah, beneficiary of those those lessons. Um, and what's the, what's the minigun story? The minigun story. On oh, the wall. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you probably know this story better than me. So I'm going to just <laughs> I'm going to tell you my I'm going to tell you my version, and then you can correct me. You can say, <laughs> shake your head when I when I say something wrong. So uh, a couple years ago. I was somewhere and I received a picture. And when I opened that picture up, it was a minigun. And that minigun was in a little casket that was draped with a flag. That minigun had been recovered by the SEALs, right? Yes. (laughs) That's why you wanted me to tell you that, just so I'd say it was the SEALs that recovered it. Seals went into Somalia, they hit a bad guy's house, and he had that in his man cave up on the wall on display, one of the miniguns from one of our helicopters. And he didn't need it anymore. (laughs) So the Seals recovered it, and they brought it back. And I don't know where it's at right now. I've never laid hands on it. Um, I just had that picture. That was probably enough for me. But uh, there's an old movie that's called, um, oh my goodness, it's an old Western. What's the movie with? Uh, yeah, Wild Bunch? No, no, the, the, it was a big series. Oh. And it was uh, Captain Call and uh, Lonesome Dove, Lonesome Dove. I'm going to say one thing, one quote from that movie. You ride with horse thieves, you die with horse thieves. Like it. Yeah. We used that one time in Iraq and it had a slightly different ending. Wow. <laughs> but uh yeah, we uh that's what I would say to those Somalis that that uh were pretty proud to have that gun displayed on their wall. They don't they should watch that movie. Well, some of them can't watch it yeah, but, uh, anymore. <laughs> yeah, that that's the that's the minigun story you were talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got a, I got a better minigun story. Oh, really? Yes. I don't know this one then. You're a hunter. You will appreciate this. So we're in Mogadishu and I'm riding around in a helicopter with a buddy of mine named Jim Smith, one of the unit dudes. He was a sniper and he, Jim and I have been friends for ever. Jim loved to hunt. So we're going to go out and we're going to shoot some critters. And on that particular day, we had our five, five, six rifles and we had a shotgun that we planned on giving to the pilot to do some shooting too. So Cliff Walcott's the pilot. And if I remember right, he was, yeah, he was flying the left front and uh, we flew out and eventually we'd shot a couple of warthogs and Jim and I were shooting them. And and I know five, five, six is just a terrible cartridge. It's the least powerful cartridge on the planet, but it'll kill a warthog. No problem. So we killed some warthogs with that. We'd land and we would put their snout in the winch and winch them up. And then we would, uh, gut them and quarter them up and put the meat inside the helicopter and cover it up with plastic. So we're flying along and we see a kudu. And I'd seen pictures of kudu. I'd never seen a kudu in, in the flesh, you know. Cliff comes to a hover and we're about to shoot this kudu and they're like, no, no, don't shoot it. We're thinking, who is the, you know, who's the douchebag that's telling us not to shoot this? We turn around, it's one of our snipers. And I see him 
handing a shotgun up to Cliff Walcott and he lays that shotgun out, puts around in the chamber. It was a 1100 and he shoots that kudu from the helicopter and we land and we cape that kudu out and everything. And, and him and, and uh, Donovan Briley, they worked on that thing every night. They, they kept, you know, fleshing it and salting it and everything. And I don't know whatever happened to that once they were killed, but that was, that's the beginning of that story. So later on, we're flying along and we see a dick dick. Mm. And I didn't know what a dick dick was, but it looked like a jackrabbit. But yeah, what they tiny. are is they're, yeah, they're an antelope about probably a foot tall, maybe a little taller than that. They have little tiny horns. And this thing is running. So Jim and I start pew, 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 shooting with our five, five, six guns. We're not even coming close, but this little joker's still Moving running out. a pretty good clip. We look over at the crew chief and he's like, looking at us with his thumbs up there, ready to gun him down with a minigun. And finally we're like, tew, tew, tew. okay, go ahead. And he goes, Burp, huge cloud of dust. And this dick dick comes running out of that cloud of dust at like 400 miles an hour. And he's getting ready to shoot again. We're like, nope, stop. If you didn't get him with that <laughs> 2000 rounds that you just fired, uh-huh. We're going to let that dick dick go. So we let that dick dick keep running. He's probably still running. His grandkids are probably still running. That's so but, great. Uh, yeah, we didn't get the dick dick. But, yeah, we killed a bunch of uh, pigs that day. I got a picture. I don't know if you've seen it, but I, there's a picture of me with one of those dead hogs. I'll have to show yeah, you. Yeah, I want to see it. I want to see it. That's one of my, the funnest things to, you know, you've, I know you've talked in your books about Africa, but people out there really should go because – if you only went to Africa and hunted baboons and warthogs, it would be worth the trip. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. And all the other critters are fun to hunt too, but. Yeah, you just learn I, so much about everything while you're over oh, there. Yeah. You make yourself a better hunter, of course, because there's a, a lot of opportunities. So it's not just the one deer, one season type thing. You can, I mean, you can pack some years of experience uh, into, uh, uh, in, in, into your life by going there yeah. and spending two weeks, three weeks, even a week. And the um, people are amazing. It's a that's the thing that, that, that I've realized is that once again, I fly around the world and I meet old friends that I've never met before. There you, go. you know, I mean, it's just these people that are just awesome. And the last trip I went over there with a friend of mine, Yappy and, uh, Yappy was a parabot and he had, so he grew up in Botswana. Parabots are like their paratroopers and that's how we became friends. And then I went and hunted Cape Buffalo with him over there, but we were driving back to camp one night and I said, how come we never eat mealy? And he goes, I don't know. We just normally don't serve it to you Americans. And I said, I've never had it. I like to eat mealy. He goes, okay. So he calls back and tells the cook and the cook goes, yeah, right. They're not going to eat mealy. You know what I'm talking about? The ground corn. Okay. Ground. It's really coarse ground corn and okay. it's what all the locals eat. Um, they eat that every day. Now, if they have meat, they'll eat meat too. But most of the, you know, most of the blacks there, they'll get very little meat until it's hunting season. And same thing, the whites will eat more meat, but they'll also eat mealy. And don't think grits. It's not like grits. It's, it's much more coarse than that. Mm. He tells me, all right, Roger that. So we get back and I tell the guys, hey, they made some mealy for us. Mealy pop, I think they call it. And they made a little bowl. Well, we cleaned that whole bowl up. And after that, they made mealy for every single meal. And we ate every bit that they made. It was, it was awesome. Nice. So, uh, yeah, one of the trips I was over there, I went into Namibia. I flew into Vindahook and I then drove about five or six hours uh, with this guy's mom and dad. And I met 
a fellow there named John Wambach. I'd already met him, but I went to hunt with him. And he was a former um, Kufut, which is the, the crowbar mm-hmm. forces that went up into Angola. And uh, he passed away here six or eight months ago from, from COVID. But mm-hmm. uh, we did a backpack hunt into the Orongo wilderness. It was, it was amazing. Wow. Amazing. He's a guy that I, I will really miss. His family was just spectacular. And um, yeah, we backpacked in there. I killed a, a kudu, a huge kudu. I've got him mounted up here on the wall. Um, I killed a uh, oryx and then I, and we had to pack the, the, you know, pack them out. Just he and I, and the camera guy. And then I cut, I shot an oryx close to his place. He lived in a sea land container. He'd taken a couple sea land containers and put them together and had like a bedroom for him and his wife and his kids in the one. He had a, a another one that was made into a kitchen and one whole side was lifted up. And then another one had his washer dryer and everything in there and a generator if they needed it. But mostly yeah. it was run off of, of uh, solar power. And then I ended up killing a, a mountain zebra there with him too. But nice. it was just, it was just awesome. Yeah, nice. super good guy. Yeah, Africa is a special place. I think I have a, a trip planned for this uh, late summer, early fall. I'm not sure if that'll still happen or not, but uh, yeah, looking forward to to getting back if there. You, you know, if you ever want to start like slumming, <laughs> you could always call your old buddy Kyle Lamb, and, and <laughs> he would probably go and at least I would probably even stir honey into your coffee for you. <laughs> I would go that far to help you. Hey, out. I would never ask you to do something to stoop so low. Uh, and do something like that. But, uh, oh man, but I have, I have a bunch of things that I want to ask you about, but I'm thinking that we should probably save it for a part two, because I want to find, I want to ask you about some things that I have been asked you about before. I've never talked to you really about the years between 1993 and 2001, uh, where you were on two, uh, on September 11th, 2001, uh, the gear up, getting ready to go to Iraq, the five times that you were, were in Iraq. Um, and, and those sort of their decision to get out working, uh, in, I don't know if you call it procurement. There was the, the directorate when you're figuring out next gear and all the next yeah, weapons. Combat, we call it combat development. Yep. Yeah. Uh, working there. Um, and then, uh, then the business side of the house and everything you've learned over these, over these years with Viking tactics. And of course the, the slings that everyone uses, the knives that are out there now, the ones you forge yourself. We talked about a little bit, but there's other ones. Yeah out there too. And you can go to Viking you Tactics and check it out. Oh, nice. I've seen it on, I've seen, I think I saw that Holy on the website. Knife. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, nice. you don't have one of these yet? <laughs> no, oh, I have the Patriot. Man. We might have to hook you up. Bro. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Love it. Love it. I mean, you always have so many cool things going on. You're always traveling. You just got the, what, the, your Rocky Mountain Bighorn not too long ago. Yep. With yep. uh, with uh, the big cross, I think you brought the cross out there. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, how long were you putting in for that before you, you got it? I believe it was like 15 or 17 years or something like that. It's been a long time. So yeah, yeah and beautiful. You, you can only put in, it's kind of like a lottery. You can only put in for that one animal. So figure out what you want to hunt and keep doing it. And somebody's got to draw the tag. And you did. I just about, I just about fell out when I heard that. And then I was trying to recover from COVID. So I was humping hills here in Tennessee, but the highest hills we got are not very high. So I just <laughs> go up and down, up and down, up and down. And, and I got over there and, and luckily the guide I had was patient enough to wait for an old guy to keep up with him. But yeah, I killed Amazing. a, I killed a stud Ram. Yep. It's incredible. Yeah. Okay. yeah I think you, you posted the yeah. picture. Did you send it to me or did you post it? I forget. I sent it to you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We got to get out there and hunt though. We need to get to, 
to Montana again next year if you're going. I'm trying to be done with this next book, book six, by midsummer, so that the I don't have this this weight on my shoulders all through the fall. Um, so I'm trying to get a little more organized this year. It's part of my, you know, uh, it's part of 2022 for me is uh, getting organized. But I think I may have said that last year, and I don't know. It, it's possible. It's, it's I'm gonna. Probable. I'm going to send you the fiction book I finished too. So you can read it. Well, I read the first one. I I can compare it to the first one because you sent it to me three years ago and I read it and I gave you some detailed, I think I gave you some notes. Yep. Um, Yep. And usually I don't do that. Usually I'll read it and be like, "Ah, good. Uh, it's pretty good. I might want to, yeah. but I gave you some, I remember I gave you some detailed oh, stuff yeah. on there. Um, yeah. and that's only because I have so much respect for you, uh, and value our friendship <laughs> so much. Um, and, uh, and I, and I, I, I was so excited to, to read it and so excited to see where, where you've taken it since. So, um, but in the meantime, people have this leadership in the shadows, every other ones, of course, as well. And why, before I, before I let you go, cause I'm excited to do a part two with you. Cause this is, we just covered a tiny bit of your life. Uh, and there's <laughs> yeah. so much, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but leadership in the shadows. So why in the shadows? I think that as leaders, if you want to be successful, you kind of have to be in the shadows. Now that doesn't mean you're not leading. That just means that you're not taking the accolades for your people. So in there, and, and there's a chapter in there where I talk about why it's leadership in the shadows it means different things to different people. For me, leadership in the shadows means I was hiding in the shadows of publicity or the public for most of my adult life. And I was either exposed to leaders that were in the shadows that couldn't tell anybody what they did, or I became the leader that was in the shadows that couldn't do that. Um, John Hale's a perfect example. Here's this leader who was in the shadows And he was even in the shadows when he did something where we were successful, he'd always push us out front. Oh yeah, it was those guys. And then when we screwed up, he was the guy standing in the front saying, that's my fault. I'm the guy that I trained these guys. It's on me. So I think that that leadership in the shadows is, is it really speaks to me. And if you look at that cover, if you look at each one of those little people standing there, they're all different. They're not all, they're not all soldiers. Yeah. At least there's, there's a business person there. There's a briefcase. a lady in there, a briefcase. There's a firefighter. Um, and their shadow is becomes the American flag. So that's all you look out, you look throughout society, the reason or, 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 or throughout history of America, our flag is still the big grand flag, but the shadow that falls on that flag is from all those men and women that went before you and I and paid that price, whether they paid it by death or they paid it by fighting for their country, like your granddad, um, man, they're doing that. They didn't do it to stand in the limelight, to stand up on stage. They did it because somebody needed to go to Okinawa and do what they did. Somebody needed to go to Midway and do what they did. Um, yeah. yeah, wherever Somali, I didn't do it to, to be able to write a book called Leadership of the Shadows. I did it because that's what they told me to do. And I went and fought beside my mates. That's what we do. Man. Oh, man, Kyle, thank you so much for spending so much time. I know we probably went past what you, what you anticipated. Uh, and I, I sincerely appreciate you, uh, you sharing all this and sincerely appreciate everything you've done for the, the nation, um, our friendship, everything you've passed along. 
Um, can't wait to get on the range with you, get out on a hunt with you. We're going to make Montana happen, uh, hopefully <laughs> next year. But this picture, so for those that are watching on, on YouTube, that picture right there, uh, you, you cut it off, uh, right here, but you're wearing blue jeans in this one, I believe. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can't yeah. see it in this actual photo here, but in real life, you're wearing blue jeans. Uh, where was this one taken right here? That's classified. <laughs> Is it really? No, no. I was in <laughs> Iraq. I, I was in, I was in Mosul, Iraq. And I, if you can, I don't know if you'll be able to see this, but I'm going to show you something because this is really funny. Um, the other day, a guy sent me this and I laughed and laughed when I saw this. Such a great picture. Oh, There's a new toy that just came out. What? Nice. It is the awesome. action figure yeah. with the blue jeans and everything. And that then it is has awesome. A, What's and then uh, it has this picture. That is, it looks like, it looks similar to this one. It's exactly that one. Nice. That's green eyes and, and black rifles right here. Warrior's Guide to Combat Carving. And, and I don't know the people that are making that doll, but uh, it's kind of funny. Is it Patriot Force? Are they doing it? No, it's some other, I don't know the name of the company. Nice. It's uh, Somebody sent it to me. I looked it up and they wanted like $280 for this thing. And I hey. said, there's no doll. That's worth $280. <laughs> Someone's going to get so. it, especially after hearing this, uh, this podcast. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I love this, this awesome picture right here too. Um, love looking at all the, the gear and the kit. And that was a day we hit a, we hit a mosque in Northern Iraq. We flew in there in little birds and then hit a mosque. And, um, there's more to that story, but it's, uh, save that for next day. time. Cause we, we, hit a good a, day. we hit a mosque too one day and, uh, we certainly heard about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we were operating out of the same place. Did you operate in Baghdad out of Baghdad, uh, out of that, when we were along the that river was, there? I, I operated out of there a little bit, but this was out of Mosul. Mm -hmm, that was out of Mosul. I know. And I was yeah. curious if you were, uh, were there where we had a little airfield and I was doing the CIA job at the time. We we're all lined up. That was a special time. That was, that was wild. Man, I'm going to let you go because you got a friend coming in and uh, I'm going to save part two to talk about the other half of your life uh, for next time and maybe in person because we're building this podcast studio and you do pass through Salt Lake every now and again. Um, so maybe this- Hey, I'm going gonna, gonna to let you in a little secret. If you invite me, I will come. Oh, you're so awesome. So you're there you so go. You're so awesome. Well, no, man, it's, yeah, it's, we'll uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to uh, one, to do the podcast, but just to get to know you over- these few years. It was kind of funny how we met. If you got time for that story. Yeah. yeah. We were at the shot show at SIG at the SIG range day. And this guy comes up and he goes, Hey, how's it going? I'm Jack Carr. I'm like, Hey, how's it going? Yeah. What's up? And Hey, we're, we're both buddies with Brad Thor. And I'm like, okay, cool. We get a picture. We do a picture together or something and you send it off to him. And then later on I was MC in the range day and you come over and we started talking. I'm like, now, now, who are you? And I'm not, and I'm not trying to be. Uh, yeah. At that point, nobody knew who you were because you right. hadn't, you had just barely released Terminal List. Yeah. And you tell me, you said, uh, man, I'd, I'd really like to give you one of my books, but, but I'm out. And I thought, cheap skate over here. Won't give you a book. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I don't really care if I get the book because <laughs> it's a fiction and I'm not really into fiction. So we talked for like half hour or 45 minutes. And I asked you a bunch of crazy questions about publishing and all this stuff. And, uh, I go over to SIG at the, at the booth at SIG and I'm doing some stuff there. And you walk up and you give me one of your paperback books that signed. 
And I was like, oh, great. Now I got to carry this <laughs> thing around with me. So I throw it in my pack and I don't really think about it. And we get on the, the plane to fly back to Nashville. It's my wife and I. And I reach in my pack and I'm like, let's see what this seal's got. <laughs> so I reach in there and I start reading terminal list and I couldn't put it down. And, and I'm not saying that because I'm trying to give you a reach around or anything. I'm not saying that because we're under podcasts. I'm saying that because your books are different than, than anything I'd read up to that point. Um, there's other guys that, that have done, tried to do what you've done. Frederick Forsyth, he puts a lot of intricate stuff in there. And some of his books are pretty realistic, but then you read another one, you're like, this is totally malarkey. When I read your book, I not only felt like I was there, but I felt like you were doing exactly what one of the guys that I would work with would do in that situation or I would do in that situation. So, man, I burned through that book and I'm like, oh, I got to read his next book. And then I find out that you're like the one hump chump there that you only <laughs> do one book a, a year. And then I got hooked on him. And I'm like, well, this sucks. So I patiently, at first I was harassing you a lot. You did I, harass I me quite a bit. Yeah. I've slowed down on the harassment because <laughs> I know that you don't, you don't listen to me, but uh, yeah. And I've started reading, I've started reading guys like Jason Casper because um, you're so slow and uh, no, but seriously, he's another guy and I'm not trying to promote him on your podcast. I'm just no, saying no, that he's an army dude. So that's awesome. Yeah. And he's very talented as well. And it's, it's, his books are totally different than yours. So it's not the same, but it's, it's stuff that a real armed professional is going to relate to. And it, it's just like, oh yeah, that's exactly, exactly what I would do. I've been now, because of you forcing me into reading that fiction, I've started to reach out because of you, I've read The Count of Monte Cristo. Mm. I mean, I've read, uh, what's his other book? The Three Musketeers. Yeah. So I appreciate you inspiring, not just me, but other readers out there to one, to read other fiction um, and just enjoy what you're reading. I mean, there's so many great books out there. So, Well, no, I appreciate all that. And uh, man, thank you so much for everything and uh, sincerely appreciate the friendship. And uh, like I said, everything you've done for this, for this nation. And uh, I can't wait to have you out here, hopefully in the new studio being built out here and we'll, We'll do it. We'll do it in person next time. I think that's a good way to go to do it in person. And we'll, we'll cook up some, uh, some moose or some elk or, uh, something yeah. here at the house and, uh, and, uh, yeah, break some bread and hang out together here. I can be there in four hours. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> hey awesome, man, man, I'm, pr I'm proud of you, brother. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for everything. And, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll link up soon. I'm sure of it. Navy Federal Credit Union. The name would suggest that it is just for members of the Navy, but that's not true. It is open to all members of the military, regardless of branch, veterans and their families. So go to NavyFederal.org, check them out. Federally insured by NCUA. They have uh, certainly financed a few of my motorcycles over the years. I've been a member since 1996. So uh, car loans, home loans, motorcycle loans, whatever it might be, be sure to check them out. And if you're just getting started and need some help investing, they can help you there too. So be sure and check out NavyFederal.org. Today's gear segment is sponsored by Zero Foxtrot. Check them out at zerofoxtrot.com. And I'm so excited for this because I've been a fan of these guys for a long 
time uh, since I became aware of who they were uh, three or four years ago. And if you go back to pictures of my last office, you can zoom in and just behind my right shoulder will be this cup, although it's in a different color. Drink coffee, stack bodies. Yeah, I love what these guys do. Ton of vintage military-inspired products, Zippos, beer steins, coffee mugs, whiskey glasses, shot glasses, shirts, hats, uh, all that sort of thing. But if you're not following them on Instagram, you definitely need to do that. So that's Zulu Fucks, Z-U-L-U-F-U-C-X-S. But great, uh, great Instagram uh, page, incredible stuff there. But if you go to zerofoxtrot.com and check them out, order a few products, use code JC at Check out for 20% off your order. Once again, that is code JC. And Zero Foxtrot, veteran-founded, the big supporter of our nation's defenders and uh, law enforcement first responders. Great guys. Um, I'll be wearing a shirt that I got from them, I think about a year ago, because they do these uh, drops every now and again that are limited edition. And this is one of theirs right here. But, uh, but there's this one I got, this limited edition drop from about a year ago that, uh, that's pretty special. And yeah, I'll wear it. Uh, I'll wear it next time. Um, very cool. Cause it has a tie to one of my favorite authors and favorite books that inspired me growing up in the eighties. So very cool, but, uh, definitely go to zerofoxtrot.com. It could be a slash JC, but use the code JC at checkout for 20% off that order. Once again, zero Foxtrot, use code JC at checkout for 20% off and stay zero. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. Where to start today, I think, with a blade. So right here, Raven Knives. I mean, this thing is awesome. And I got this at the Fieldcraft Survival Leadership Seminar last week out in Heber, Utah. Veteran owned and operated Raven Knives. And it is ravenknives.com. So check them out. And man, the owner, operator, founder was such a solid dude. So um, that translates over actually into a very solid knife because that's the first thing I thought of when I unsheathed this thing was just how solid it is. So uh, I'm going to be getting a few more. So thank you so much, Raven Knives, Raven Knives USA. Definitely check them out. What else? Scout Light. Had a surefire on every single deployment. And when that scout light came out for uh, those that were around, uh, you know what a game changer that was. So this is the scout light pro, and this will be going on a rifle of mine very soon. So surefire. Thank you so much. Can't wait to give this thing a run. And Kyle Lamb and I talked about the SIG P320 line on this podcast. So uh, there are a lot of options we're talking about the SIG P320 line. So right there, got a red dot optic on that one. And here we go, a little bigger right here, but uh, no red dot on that one, although you have the option. Um, very cool. And this one right here is the 320 AXG Scorpion. Uh, put a little surefire light on that one. But uh, this thing, when I shot this thing, it uh, felt like I was shooting my SIG P226. Uh, for whatever reason, I mean, it's just solid. And that's what it felt like. So I'm a huge fan of this one. AXG Scorpion. Uh, awesome. Thank you, SIG. And what do I carry that thing around in? 
right here at Black Point Tactical Mini Wing. And what I love about this is it says Sig Sauer 320 AXG Scorpion. So when I look in the drawer and I sift through the thousands of holsters that I have, um, I know which one it's for. So Black Point Tactical, if you followed me for a while or read the books, uh, you'll know that I'm a fan. So now it's time to go get yourself a SIG. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Kyle Lamb, go to vikingtactics.com. You can find out more about the books, the knives, the slings, gear, his podcast, everything else he has going on. Link to the social channels from vikingtactics.com. You can find me at officialjackcar.com or jackcarusa.com for the merch. I'm at jackcarusa on the social channels and in the blood is available for pre-order now coming in hot on May 17th. Until the next time, take care, be safe, stay strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy exactly. or right. Right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.